Welcome to Shelved by Genre, a show about types of literature and the worlds they imagine. This season, we're reading through Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun, and this episode is about chapter 7 through 18 of The Shadow of the Torturer. For a list of content warnings, please check the episode description. I am Cameron, and with me here, in my ceremonial execution, are Michael and Austin. I have a mask on. I'm doing karate moves. Ah. Now, do you think do you think in Nessus you think they've got karate? If all of human history piled up in a main karate would last. You think they got karate? Yeah, yeah, karate yeah. stuck around. Yeah, I, yeah. I think nothing marks this as something that was, uh, you know, written before the late '80s as much as the lack of karate. Really, <laughs> that's, that's, that's right. <laughs> now, wait a second. We don't know. There could be. You know, somewhere somewhere in a different part of the citadel, a tower of karate. <laughs> Severian just didn't go there. They're just reenacting the plot of Karate Kid for eternity <laughs> over and over. They, they've yeah. institutionalized. <laughs> Every apprentice must go out and find a the random feast of master. Saint Daniel. Yeah. <laughs> it wouldn't even be the, the feast of Mr. Miyagi. It would have to be the feast of Saint Daniel. <laughs> this is a world of social relations, Cameron, and unfortunately I guess that's right. I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> I see uh-huh. what you're saying. Uh-huh. Um well uh we read more of this book. Mm-hmm. Now um I you know I have up here in my notes. I just have general notes about banter. Right, but you didn't put any notes in there I about didn't what put we a should single, banter about. I didn't put a single note. So uh, someone's going to have to bootstrap some banter here for me. Um, or I can just go right to the summary and you no, can... No, uh, we can banter. Okay. We'll figure out some fucking banter. Mm-hmm. Um, All right. Hey, we put a podcast out and people are responding positively to it. Thank you for that. Yeah, it's, that's it's really true. cool. Uh, I think my favorite thing is people sharing their Severian fan art. We should make oh. like an explicit call. More Severian fan art, please. I I love Severian fan art. I like I like some people draw Severian in a very uh, like uh, almost like metal cover style. You know, like yeah. real gr- grungy, chunky guy, kind of like a, weirdly enough, like a teenage mutant ninja turtle a yeah. little bit, right? You know, he's like <laughs> thick and thick and uh, you know got a big weapons and stuff, and I think that's fun. Um, you know, he's, he's like a little, uh, gremlin guy, like a little human uh-huh. hedgehog. I like that. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun. Like a little human hedgehog. That's our Severian. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's got that look about him. Uh, but then there's the other side, which I also find very compelling, which is like the JRPG Severian. There's something <laughs> yes. about like, uh, the kind of baseline JRPG aesthetic that really nails like the amount of stuff that's just going on in book of the new sun. Mm-hmm. <laughs> It really captures it for me. There are those. There are specifically those Amano drawings yes. for the Japanese release, and that's incredible. Which I guess that's not fan art. That's the publisher commissioned the guy who does all of the Final Fantasy character designs to do Severian and various other characters on these covers. So, and they're great. Uh, you, you know, like uh, the last time talked a little bit about. Book of the New Sun is a little bit like Lives of the Saints. You know, it's Severian, especially in these uh, next couple episodes that we're recording. Lots of Severian just meeting people and doing stuff. You know, just <laughs> random things occurring, essentially. And uh, but and I didn't really think about this until I saw, you know, these these Amano pieces. That's also kind of like the way that Dragon Quest is structured, too, right? Where it's mm-hmm. like, 
You go to uh, you know, whatever, like Happiness Village. Yep. There's something there's something going on in Happiness something Village. Not so happy in Happiness Village. <laughs> You've got to go talk to one guy in Happiness Village. And then you gotta go kill one monster in Happiness Village, and then we're going on to the next village. Right. And you it's, might bring it, someone from Happiness Village with you. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. You're gonna get Happiness Guy who who was uh too happy and now he's sad. <laughs> Yeah. You know, like we're going to get a little of a turn into the game. He's going to change, you know, mm, but there mm-hmm. is a little bit of that to it, too, of uh, of that. So, uh, yeah, Amano really brought it together for me. Yeah, I'm going to have some stuff to say about that this episode in terms of literary genre. And actually, for next episode, I'd like us to contemplate this question. Hopefully we can circle back to it uh, is imagining Adjula as a party member in like a JRPG. Like there, yep. there's something. It's very clear to me how that character would work in a in a game. <laughs> Wait, Agia, not Agila. Oh, not a- I'm sorry. Right, Agia, right? Yeah, I think it is Agia. I can't remember because her uh, brother has the L. Yes, her brother yeah. has the L. Yeah. <laughs> not to get into spoilers, <laughs> but he sure does. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> no one has ever gotten the L more uh, in, in a tragic way, but I think we're going to talk about that next episode even. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, uh, yeah, well, is that enough banter? Do we have enough banter going on here? Do we, maybe, maybe we can have a little bit more. We, uh, yeah, the, the show released, people liked it. People have shared it. People talked about it. That's all cool. Mm-hmm. Thanks. Uh, uh, rate us five stars on whatever platform of choice you're on. Go to patreon.com slash range touch. Uh, last, last week. Yes, last week, if you're listening to this the day it came out, comes out, the uh, first bonus episode came out. It's on patreon.com slash range touch. It's on Ralph Bakshi's The Lord of the Rings. So uh, you can go check that out right now. It's out this very moment. And that is cool. Uh, <laughs> I'll say. <laughs> yeah, please. Oh, you're, you're, uh, you're supporting what I'm saying. You're yes. not saying something additionally. No. No, okay. I was just supporting right. that it's cool to talk about Ralph Bakshi's Lord of the Rings. It is. And I told you all after that, that uh, I found out on eBay that Ralph Bakshi himself is just selling like every frame of animation from that film for like <laughs> $750 on eBay. Uh, you can buy any any image you want, basically, from that. And the horniest <laughs> art is up, up top. <laughs> And it's more expensive. The stuff like the horny art of like women laying down and rolling around on the ground from fire and ice is hundreds of dollars more for than anything else that's being sold. You cannot say that the man didn't know what he was doing. The guy knows what he's doing. Cameron, I thought that you were making a more broad statement about our modern condition, which was you can buy any image you want. Period. <laughs> that's that's the world in 2023. That is the world in 2023. It's it's true. That you know, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, as Severian walked backward into the throne, I'm going to walk backward into a better idea than the thing I expressed. (laughs) Uh, all right, let me read the summary because, uh, I think we're itching to talk about, I don't know, St. Catherine, probably. Mm -hmm. Probably. All right, this is a summary. This is me basically writing a paragraph about every chapter that we read. We read quite a few uh, chapters for today, so this is uh, maybe about the same length as the last time. But buckle up, everybody, because here's my summary for episode two of the content that was in the books. 
Severian meets the Chatelaine Thecla, a very tall, thin woman with violet eyes and a triangular face that reminds him of someone else. She is so large that she is able to swallow an entire leak in one go. She is an exultant that has been remitted to the torturers for political purposes. He gives her the books that he retrieved from Master Ultan in the previous chapter, and she immediately cajoles him into breaking the rules by opening her cell door and sitting on her bed. Severian assures her that she will be tortured. Master Gerlos, a leader in the guild, summons Severian to his office and explains that Thecla is an exultant, one of high blood, and that she is also a concubine for the Autarch who represents her family in court. She has been sent to the torturers because her sister, Thea, has thrown in with Vodalus. Remember them from the beginning of the book? Master Gerlos also tells Severian that he must sit with Thecla while she eats, but that he cannot have sex with her, even if she wants to, because that would bring shame on the guild. Later, Roche comes to retrieve Severian to take him to the house of Zur so that he can lose his virginity with the women there. It is a kind of more than brothel, and it has a fiction attached to it that the women there are the Autox concubines flown from the House Absolute every night. He chooses a woman pretending to be Thecla, is disappointed in her, and then has sex with her. Severian pretends to keep going to the House of Zur, but he never goes there again. Severian has more conversations with Thecla. She explains things from the book she has, and she tells him of a prophecy that she will one day sit on a throne. She takes off Severian's shirt, and he gets so horny that he has to wander the necropolis at night like Batman. <laughs> Later, he is summoned by the guildmasters, who ask if he plans to become a journeyman. He says he does, and they share with him the secret at the heart of the guild. We are not told what that is at this time. Then there is a feast. It is a celebration for their patron, Holy Catherine, and it is also a promotional experience. Severian is becoming a journeyman, after all. The feast has a ritual recreation within it. Holy Catherine, tortured on the wheel, has her life ended by beheading in an elaborate magic trick. Her head comes off. Severian is anointed in her blood, and then she places her head back on her shoulders and declares him a torturer. She might be a robot or something. Later that night, after a post-feast barf, Severian sees his former master Malrubius, who died many years previous. The next day, Severian finds the order for Thecla's excruciation. She will be tortured. He resolves to do something about it, but is caught up in his feeling that Thecla will only ever see him as a, quote, rather sweet boy. He is ordered to assist in the torturing, and on the way, Master Gerlos gives everyone a tour of the various disused torture devices in the torturarium. She is eventually subjected to the Revolutionary, a device that will make her destroy her own body. Later, once she realizes this, she calls it a device from Erebus, from Abaya. Eventually, Severian puts a knife into her hand and leaves the room. When he sees the blood flowing beneath the door, he goes to tell Master Gerlos what he has done. This presents a problem for the guild. They cannot kill Severian because they do not have the authority to, to judge what he did a crime, but they also cannot call in an external judge because it would harm the guild's reputation. The solution is to send him to Thrax, the city of windowless rooms, to become a Carnifex, uh, an executioner. Severian starts thinking of all kinds of stuff, and Palamon interrupts to say that Severian was not paying attention to a lot of good advice that the master was throwing down. <laughs> oh well. Later, Palamon gives Severian the sword Terminus Est, and then banishes him from the Mannequin Tower. He meets some cops with riot shields and bulletproof vests who are annoyed with him, and he kicks one of their asses. 
Severian then goes to an inn, bullies an innkeeper, and ends up sharing a room with a giant named Baldanders. He has a dream of flying, and then being beneath the ocean, where he meets the brides of Abaya, who are huge, pale women. He asks who he is, and the brides show him a puppet show of a marionette boy fighting a larger figure with a club. Then he wakes up to find Dr. Talos, the business partner of Baldanders, in the room. The giant will not wake up, so Dr. Talos starts beating the hell out of him with a stick. <laughs> Baldanders gets out of bed. They eat breakfast at a cafe, where Dr. Talos recruits a young woman to be in the performance and a play he is devising. He also recruits Severian, although Severian abandons them and continues his journey north to Thrax. He decides to buy a cloak, and a very attractive woman named Agia tells him to go inside a specific shop where he meets her brother, Agilus. While there, a gauntleted soldier appears with an Avern seed, challenging him to Monomaki, a one-on-one -on -one duel to the death. Apparently, Severian has offended some member of the House Absolute, and this is the effect. Then Severian, the narrator, goes into a long defense of how he is writing his memoir, actively saying that he does not like the idea of condensing his life in a way that I am doing here. He talks about the act of interpretation by reading through an anecdote about the Autok Yamar, noting that the same words can be read and interpreted in many different ways, and that interpretation and reality might not match up with one another all that often. Agia puts Severian into a horse-drawn taxi, and they head to the Botanical Gardens, where they will pick an Avern, a plant that you do combat with. They get into a street race, and their taxi driver goes up a flight of stairs, through a bush, and through the walls of the Cathedral of the Pelerins, and directly into a holy altar. In the chaos, something called the Claw disappears, and the Pelerines interrogate Agia and Severian about it. Then they leave. And that was all that we read for today. We're off. Mm -hmm. We're off on an adventure. <laughs> We're doing something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, th this uh, chunk of reading in the next is definitely like historically when I was first reading this, like this is where it all comes together for me. Not that mm -hmm. I was like cool on it before. I was actually really into it. Uh, but, uh, you know, like all the cool like setup with Severian as narrator and all that stuff and like the rocket ship castle, so on and so forth. That was really neat. It wasn't until we hit this stuff that I was like, oh, this is like playing a game that I wasn't even expecting. Right. Uh, and I don't know if that's how a lot of people feel, if only because it is sort of notable also that we don't really have a plot yet. <laughs> well, we yeah. did. Yeah, Severian has to go be a, 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 an executioner to the north somewhere. And boy, it seems like it's going to be a, a journey to get there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, like we get the outline, right? I guess that's what I mean. It's yes. like we have the trajectory of what Severian needs to be doing. But in yes. terms of like what is actually happening, it's like, what on earth? <laughs> it's a frame for vignettes at this uh -huh. point. Right. Now, will those vignettes snowball into something bigger? Uh, sure would be good for a book to do that. So we'll see. <laughs> well, I, you know, I guess a, a couple big things that, that, that we probably got to talk about. Um, mm -hmm. the first one being everything that happens with Thecla, mm -hmm. uh, yes. because probably, uh, in terms of the shadow of the torturer, the most important thing, well, I guess there's two important things that happen in this section of reading that we did for today. The first one being everything with Thecla. And then the second thing being the, the fact that they run into the, the cathedral of the Pelerines at the very end mm -hmm. uh, of the reading for today in terms of like stuff that matters for the next four books, you know, all the way through earth. Those are the two big things 
you know, and and I'm not, you know, obviously not going to say why those things matter so much, but they are heavily resonant through the rest of the text, um, the rest of the Book of the New Sun total. So uh, let's talk about his whole deal with Thecla and what happens. Um, you know, Austin, you very famously talked about a big man, but have you heard about a big woman? I thought I, I thought you meant on this podcast I'd mentioned a big man, and I was like, we no. can't talk about bald panders yet. That's later. <laughs> uh, yeah, she's a big woman. She's a big woman who he instantly falls in love with. Um, you know, I, this is I, we all have we all uh, probably have different moments in this section that are like, oh, I'm into this book, and for me, it was probably the their discussions about theology and. Um, uh, Thecla explaining the value of contradiction inside of belief, um, that if you want to build a good faith, a good religion, it has to include a moment of, uh, departure from reason. Uh, there has to be, she says she, she is basically, you know, after they're reading the books together and all that, uh, there's this, there's this bit where she's like, when I'm free, I'll found my own sect, my own religion. And he's like, well, what are you going to teach about? And, and, uh, uh, she's like, oh, I'm going to teach that there's no God or and, and no heaven. I'm going to teach there's no uh, Agatha demon and no afterlife. Um, I, I know the Agatha demon is not as, as simple as God, uh, but let's move quickly here. Uh, <laughs> uh, and and he's like, okay, cool. So there's no God, there's no heaven. Where where are you going to say that came from? Um, and she's like, I don't know, an angel or ice, perhaps, or a ghost. What do you think is best? And he's like, no, wait a second. You said there's no God or an afterlife. Why would that be? How not there a contradiction in that? And she says, precisely. Her voice was rich with the pleasure the question gave her. In that contradiction will reside the appeal of this new belief. One can't f- found a novel theology on nothing, and nothing is so secure a foundation as a contradiction. Look at the great successes of the past. They say they're deities are masters of all the universes and yet they require grandmothers to defend them as if they were frightened as if they were children frightened by poultry or that the authority that punishes no one while there exists a chance for reformation will punish everyone when there is no possibility anyone will become the better for it that you'll you'll you know um uh the the authority that is the perfect dispenser of justice um, uh, nevertheless punishes people in ways that does not actually make them better or rehabilitate them. Uh, she says to the torturer in her bedroom. <laughs> uh, so love yeah. it. Immediately I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I think this was the scene when uh, the first time I was reading, I was like, oh, Gene Wolfe thinks Severian is a, is a dork. Gene Wolfe <laughs> thinks that Severian doesn't understand anything in the world, really. Uh, this confirmed that to me in a way that was like, he's interested in Severian as someone who will be bested in conversation, who is not the... Uh, you know, we at this point, you already kind of know that he's a liar and that you can't necessarily trust his, his narration. But here is this instance of him being like wooed and bamboozled by someone who knows all the right words, but who doesn't necessarily herself believe in anything. And, and at that point I'm, I'm all in. <laughs> uh, yeah. And the one thing to think about here too, is Severian's what? 16. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Something, something like, like that. that. Yes. Yeah, 17. You, you know, yeah, like guessing, he, he yeah. Is, yeah, he's like a, he's a child, right? Yeah. You know, he is not. And the other reason I say that is that there is a, the reason 16 is kind of the round number in my head is that uh, in the in the next reading that we did for episode three of the show, uh, 
that there's someone else who is similarly aged and like an external character says, oh, y'all seem to be about the same age, you know, mm-hmm. so he might even be younger than that and just appear to be a little bit older. But uh, yeah, I mean, he is someone who Severian is is a child who has grown up in this tightly cloistered little universe and now is talking to someone who has been at the seat of power for the planet, or at least, you know, this massive country, the Commonwealth, whatever it is, right? You know, the Autark is so well-known, and she can maneuver there. You know, she has yes. the capability and the knowledge to maneuver there. So, yeah, she's, uh, you know, a, a beautiful uh, rhetor in that way, right? She she knows how to, like, bend the thing, and she has all the education. You know, she, she has this kind of... Uh, we learned a couple times there's this kind of private education apparatus going on um, where she's learned all these different ideas before. She knew about those books to ask for specifically. Right. But she also is not a scholar. She explicitly says, you know, when I was at the House Absolute, I was trying to party all the time. I was not interested in theological and philosophical conversations. But uh, they put me in a cell now, and the only thing I have is you and these books. So, uh, so I guess we're talking about God. <laughs> Uh, yeah, there's that really great uh, section somewhere where she's talking about being in the House Absolute, and she's like, yeah, in the House Absolute, people say a lot of stuff, they talk a lot. Uh, you know, one time I was talking about, like, what the Autark is and, you know, what he's all about, and someone told me something, and then l- later on I was talking to someone else about that, and then she told me something about the Autark, and then I realized while she was talking that I told her this six months ago. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I, it's obviously a lot more beautiful in the actual text than, than that, right? I, because she, Wolf is deploying that in a very particular re- way, but the structure of that's really funny to me that – the people in the house absolute know that knowledge is so impermanent and that it's basically just party time and court intrigue all the time that if you're paying attention, you realize it's the same rumors and echoes just running around everywhere. Uh, It's a pretty dim view of governance. (laughs) I mean, what is the view in this section that we get of what the house absolute is? Because this is where we start to see it kind of come into some bit of clarity in terms of who is in charge and etc. Well, we get all that explanation of uh, the concubines, right? Basically the Autark, right. um, I believe it's Gurlos who explains this, uh, it might be Palamon, but uh, one of Severian's elders uh, explains that uh, basically every important noble family, there are many, many noble families we learn, but there are the important ones and then sort of the unimportant ones and every sort of uh, important family that has enough sway or power or resources or whatever, you know, your basic feudalism stuff uh, has sent a uh, daughter to the house absolute to be the emperor's concubine. Um, and basically we with under the threat that like if any of the uh, families or the houses uh, attempts to move against the autark, then the autark has a hostage on hand in order to extract whatever he needs from the uh, families. So, that doesn't seem terribly great. <laughs> uh, no, oh, you're telling great. me that uh, infrastructural hostage taking doesn't seem <laughs> right. Uh, and there are hundreds of these people, you know, right? That, right. That who are in it's uh, the the structure is called the Well of Orchids, mm-hmm. you know, and we don't really know what that is yet. You know, we don't know is that a section of the House Absolute? Is that something? But uh, we know all that because of what? What is the woman's name? It's not Viola. Um, Valeria from, from, from yeah Valeria yeah, yeah Valeria yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. because she says 
you know, our family is so old in, in the in, in the first six chapters of the book. She says, you know, our family is so old and so disempowered that we don't even have anyone in the well of orchids mm-hmm. uh, right. you know, to represent our family. We're not even important enough to be held hostage. Um, and so, uh, so yeah, so we, we get that, we get that there's this kind of other thing, Michael, what else we got? Uh, so we already know that the, I, I don't remember if we talked about this specifically in the previous episode, but something is weird with the house absolute, uh, vis-a-vis space in orientation in space, uh, because uh, one of the things that Oltan, I believe says, or maybe it's Rudson, one of the people that, uh, Severian meets when he's down in the archives talks about how, uh, the collections extend to the house absolute. So there are connections between like the sub levels of the Citadel and the house absolute. Uh, but it's also very clear that the house absolute is not in the city in Nessus. So there's something going on where there are tunnels that go for a very long time. Question mark. Uh, something kind of strange, right? Baffling. Uh, and then the details that we get from Thecla here, um, there are people, I can't remember precisely why there are people who are, out probably looking for the house absolute, she says. Uh, and she, uh, she uh, uh, Severian says that people have been, journeymen have been sent to go and fetch her clothes. Right. 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 And so she's like, well, you know, that's, that'll be great if the house absolute will let them find it. Like there's yeah, some, since it can't be seen, you could be there and never know if you're not lucky. Yeah. <laughs> So, so something weird is going on with the ha- uh, the house absolute uh, in terms of space and time, uh, and that kind of compounded with this like hostage taking thing. Uh, it just really, you know, raises some questions about what is going on in this Commonwealth. You know, what is uh, an autarky, right? A, a sort of form of absolute power invested in one person uh, that is also. Uh, uh, holding all other potential sources of power hostage and is also like disappearing itself is capable of like obscuring itself and hiding in a way that means that, uh, you know, you, you, you cannot siege the house absolute, right? Whatever, Mm -hmm. uh, uh, that place is, it's not a place where you can like form a strike because the house absolute is capable of hiding itself. Yeah. Right, and also right. seems to have agents everywhere and nowhere. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, you know, we get all these hints, especially through the next few chapters about hipparchs and, uh, you know, assassins and all of these different people who are involved in kind of the aristocracy and maybe the autarky itself. You know, lots of people in Nessus, you know, later on that we find out they're afraid to say the autarch's name. You know, they'll, they'll make this kind of inference uh, 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 or hint at, you know. A power vested in me by that name that we, of course, will not name. That kind of stuff happens a few times. And Which so we there, haven't, a way right? To- we, we, we don't know the current Altarch's name. We know the names of some past Altarchs via stories and such. But the current Altarch has not been named. Uh, no, right? as far as I know. Right. I, right. I can't think yeah, of where he, it would be. Uh, he's just constantly referred to as these, like, over-the-top epithets, right? The one that I think it's right, used a couple right. times is, like, the Autark, whose pores outshine the stars themselves or something, right? Just the right, absolute right. absurd, like, flattery, courtly-type flattery. That's not just being used by the people of the court. Like, these are people on the street who, whenever they mention the Autark, <laughs> uh, have to tag in or feel like they have to tag in uh, these absurd compliments. Right. Well, and then the other half of this is we get Thecla explaining, I believe it's Thecla explaining, no one really knows what Altar, what the Altar will get up to, and no one knows what Father Anir will get up to. And you're like, wait, who's Father Anir? 
And then I believe it's her that that explains. I, I just have the the quote pulled out here. When I first came to court, I was told as a great secret that it was Father Anir who really determined the policy of the Commonwealth. Uh, and and goes on to explain that, like you know, at the end of the day, we don't know. We it doesn't matter because it seems as if the Altark and Father Anir are both. They sometimes contradict each other. They sometimes contradict themselves. They certainly contradict past Altarks. And um, the, I think this is the bit where she goes on to say the thing about um, uh, someone told me something I I told her a year before, and I thought it was a new mm-hmm. information until I remembered it. But there's this other figure, Father Anir, who seems to be, if not as high as the Altarks, someone who at the very least has as much um, practical power as the Altark in some situations, though does not seem to have, for instance, hundreds of concubines in the same way, you know? Mm-hmm. I, I actually want to read this just because it is, it's please, so please. good. Um, so uh, this is the uh, uh, Severian in the narration kind of summarizing uh, him and Thecla trading what they know about has, House Absolute, basically. He's like, yeah, this is kind of what we say out here. <clears throat> so he's talking about sort of all the, although none of the boys had seen the place or so much as spoken with anyone who had, all had heard stories. Most were a fabled wealth, gold plates and silk saddle blankets and that sort of thing. More interesting were the descriptions of the Autark, who would have had to be a kind of monster to fit them all. He was said to be tall when standing, of common size when seated, aged, young, a woman dressed as a man, and so on. More fantastic still were the tales of his vizier, the famous Father Anir, who looked like a monkey and was the oldest man in the world. (laughs) Uh, Let's go! (laughs) Right, and this is like, this is such a great example of like how the world building in this book works, where um, so much of the stuff around Severian is uh, has all of this like built up history and legend and hearsay around it that you can never be sure uh, how much you are hearing or like getting from the narration is like true or like some bizarre distortion because just out of nowhere, here's this guy, Father Aniri, who looks like a monkey and is the oldest man in the world. And like, that could be true. That could be a thing in this world, but we don't know. It's just, that's what people say. <laughs> Yeah, and yep. it's what some sixteen-year-old heard, right? <laughs> exactly. Right. It's it's the my uncle who works for Nintendo of of in Nessus, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I don't, I don't know. <laughs> my, my aunt who's held his concubine in in the <laughs> house absolute, right? I mean, that it, wouldn't it happen that, with any of the right? torturers, obviously, because they're they don't know what their own lineages are. We know this. Don't correct us. Uh, you know, I uh, shout out to everyone listening. The only, like, real informative correction that we have received in terms of, like, uh, well, you didn't get this right, which which was a correct one. I made that voice, like the, the Professor Frank voice, unwarranted, because Madakeen, mask wear, coming from the Italian, mm. I, did some, mm. I did some logical leaps. I was wrong. Uh, but it's even cooler. They're, they're clowns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they're, they're medieval <laughs> Italian clowns. Of course, uh, uh, which that's is good. good. That's great. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks for that uh, additional little information there. Um, but but yeah, all of the this kind of hearsay work that we have going on, uh, it fills out the world, right? And the, it, it still becomes very vague, right? Like everything outside of Severian's immediate experience, the things that he is doing, has this kind of like 
you know, receding into the mist quality to it, mm-hmm. where some things, you can see big structures, right? Ah, oh, the autarky exists. Uh, Father and Year is, like, doing some stuff, but we don't really know, like, what the shape of that is, and we get it, some of it, you know, fed to us bit by bit. Um, for Father, uh, what's our pronunciation on this? Is this Aniri? Is that what we're going with? I, I, I have the audiobook in my head from when I first listened to it a few years ago, and that guy said Anir, and so that's where mm-hmm. my brain goes, but I will match your Anire for, for this if that's what we want to do. I'm an Inir. I'm, we have so a perfect we're, we're triangle. Wow. Odds. Yeah. yeah. Well, they, you know what? They don't. That is, uh, in my mind, that's canonical. Uh, people in the setting use different pronunciations and debate, which is true. Mm-hmm. He would love this. I think he would. That <laughs> oh, motherfucker yeah, would love this. Uh, but he's like a Merlin. That's that, that's what I kind of you know continue every time I read these books. I think, oh, he is such a interesting kind of Merlin-esque figure, right? Which is that there is power and there's kind of um, governmental power that is associated with some sort of lineage, right? We don't really know how (laughs) autarchs are selected. Are they selected? You know, we know that there are uh, historical autarchs, so the the autarch that exists is not eternal, right? Mm -hmm. We do know that. Um, But, uh, you know, we don't really know the thing. And yet... There's this other branch of power, as you talked about, Austin. You know, the book is very clear that in the court, it is unclear what decisions are made by the autarch and what which are made by Father Inuri. And and yet everyone respects whatever the decisions are anyway, so it kind of doesn't matter. There's this other branch of power, and he's the oldest man in the world, right? Like he's been around kicking around doing stuff as long as anyone can remember, as much as the autarch has. And so right. it's this very clear kind of split split. Also, something we have not talked about father right mm-hmm. like he has this kind of religious figureness to him and yet no one has said anything about that so far right no one says and of course he's the head of the church or or of course he's the head of a guild that is important or he is a god figure we it doesn't no one says that outright um uh, and and we we come to know that they talk about gods in terms of titles in different ways here um, uh, not in terms of names as direct as father and near, you know, you know, like it's, it's much more, um, I'm trying to think of, of like the compassion, the, com- the compassionating that might be in this section that might be in the next section. I don't quite remember. Um, there, there are similar sorts of, there's one that I can't quite like the pan creator, right? Mm-hmm, They're yeah. the pan creator fairly often. That is not the, it's not, uh, father and near, like that's a different. It feels like that's a that's a mortal, you know, role that he's he is taking up with father, uh, but no one talks about it. So yeah, I don't know. Mm-hmm. We'll see. We'll get more of him. I know soon. So yeah, uh, we also get the increate mm-hmm. uh, somewhere right. around here too. Yes. Right, we get all yes. these. Are they synonyms? We don't really know. We don't but know. Yeah, yeah. We, we get a lot of words for religious stuff. Uh, but we don't really know too much about it yet. Well, uh, we've kind of gotten away from from the Shadowly and Thecla here a little bit, huh? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but it's all kind of bound up in one another because, as you said, right? One of the major conversations that Severian and Thecla have is this kind of metaphysical religious one, right? She says, "Once I'm out, I'm going to found my own religion, and here's how I would do it." Right? Like that. That's actually the pragmatic part of that com- that more theoretical conversation they have, right? That's a re- that for us as readers and for Wolf as as an author, we're clearly meant to get that kernel out, you know, about what is faith, 
you know, it's built on contradiction, all that kind of stuff, right? But mm-hmm. the the actual plotty structure, and this is, I think, one of the strengths of Wolf as a writer, is that he will do two things at one time, and it's really easy to, like, you know, put your eye on the ball and then miss the context, right? Like, the context of that is, I'm in prison now, I will not be in prison forever, and when I leave, I'm going to create a, a counterfaith, right? Because mm-hmm. it has to be for the state religion, right? I'm going to create a counterfaith to the one that everyone already has, and I'm going to do something with it. Let's talk about Thecla and why she's here, uh, and then let's talk about Thecla and what happens to her. Uh, Michael, do you want to give us the rundown on why she's here and then what happens? Well, Thecla is here because her sister Thea... Uh, who we saw in the previous reading, uh, although it is rather roundabout the way that these pieces get put together here for us. We can talk a little bit more about the blow by blow there. But uh, her sister, Thea, uh, has gone in uh, with Vodalus and her, this is all filtered through Thecla, by the way. This is kind of Thecla's mm-hmm. understanding of the politics of her own situation. She sees herself as being used as a pawn in order to extract something from Thea uh, that she's the, the autark or the autark's agents or whoever, uh, whatever is actually the decision-making body here. Cause it's not the torturers and it is in name the autark, but we don't really know what the autark is up to or planning. Uh, they are hoping that Thea will be so moved by Thecla being imprisoned that she will defect from Vodalus or, you know, uh, convince Vodalus to come to some sort of negotiation or something, right? That's that's what uh, Thecla says. That's kind of her understanding of that situation. Um, and basically, she spends several months just kind of waiting. Uh, and this is some of the, you know, most melancholy shit uh, in, these, in this reading is Severian talking about... Uh, the the shared patterns of people who come to uh, the torturers and kind of like the Severian knows like the second he meets Thecla and she's talking about like, oh, well, I'm going to get out and I'm going to start a religious sect. He talks along with her and he'll like, you know, he's happy. He's he's thrilled to be able to talk to her about this stuff. And at the same time in his narration, we get him talking about how like, yeah, this was pretty common. Uh, particularly of people of like high enough standing uh, when they whenever they came to us, uh, they would be assured that or they would assure themselves uh, that they would be pardoned or released uh, or something would happen before they were actually tortured. Uh, and a lot of their time is actually just spent waiting for any sort of excruciation or any sort of anything to happen at all. And you can like chart the, the kind of degradation of their mental state as they uh, delve for more and more fully into kind of like their fantasies of escape and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. It's it, he, the way he presents it's kind of like the stages of grief almost. Yes. You know, there, there are these predictable patterns that a client will go through while imprisoned in the tower. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. So uh, for quite a long time, uh, Thecla is just kind of being held prisoner and it's not fun, but she's not being tortured and Severian is hanging out with her as her kind of like conversation companion. Um, And there's other stuff going on there, too. But uh, uh, then after Severian is elevated, uh, quite interesting timing on this. That's when Thecla is or rather the order is given for Thecla's torture. Uh, and so they take her down into uh, the engine room, actually, I believe is what Severian talks about it. Like all of the torture devices are now set up in the engine room and they are like drawing off of the old engines of the uh, of the tower. 
Uh, and she is put into a machine, uh, as you already said in your summary, Cameron, called the Revolutionary, uh, which I, I believe you described it as like makes her destroy her own body. How this works on like the ground level is actually psychology, it seems. Like the the revolutionary, uh, as we kind of see it in operation, is basically it's like a table she gets strapped to, and there's like this sort of like glass dome that is positioned over her head. Uh, and there's some sort of neural or cognitive thing that is happening uh, because she talks about how she had like a vision of something that was like a double of her, but was also not her. And uh, it, it seems to awaken a kind of um, like sub personality within the person subjected to it uh, that makes them incapable of controlling their own body. Right. And this is like the, the, the grim, uh, uh, irony of the name of the device, the revolutionary. It awakens an element in the person that then destroys the person from the inside out. So Thecla talks about how um, she's she's talking, she's looking around, she's aware, and at the same time, her own hands are like clawing up her like arms, or she's like you know uh, uh, getting ready to strangle herself or something. Um, and so she's not totally in control of all her own motor functions, and she's uh, constantly being beset by uh, this element inside of herself that is trying to destroy her. Um, mm -hmm. It's the kind of, kind of like an evil dead two machine a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Um, and as I said, you know, this is obvious. There's like irony here uh, with the fact that Thea is in with Vodalus, the revolutionary, right? Mm -hmm. That this is like a, a, a poetic uh, punishment that is being dispensed. Who's poetry, right? Who's writing the poem? Very unclear. Uh, right. But it, as a revolutionary destroys the body of the state mm -hmm. and we get a lot of discussion, like tertiary discussion of uh -huh. like, what is a state and stuff like that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, peppered in. I meant to say earlier when we we're talking about things like the house absolute is everywhere and it's nowhere and it has all these free functioning mm -hmm. limbs that follow the commands. I mean, it loops together here, right? The the executioner's guild or the, the torturer's guild does not decide what the the punishment for Thecla is, right? That come that's handed down to them from from the head of the state. And it's not their decision. They cannot be the hand that turns against the state, right? They cannot be the hand that wants to choke the body's neck. Um uh, and so there is there is already in the in the way that the House Absolute and the Citadel and the uh, overall what, what are we what is the society called? Do we have a name for like what the this Commonwealth. nation, the Commonwealth, the Commonwealth, yeah. Yeah. the Commonwealth yeah. in general. Um, sometimes your brain just misses a beat. Uh, the Commonwealth in general um, is both literally and figuratively uh, being described in a lot of this stuff. And so, and so, yeah, it maps really nicely here over the, the revolutionary punishment. Mm -hmm. And so Severian, uh, the second he receives the, or rather becomes aware of the order uh, for Thecla's uh, torture, which notably is not like a thing that is handed down to him. It's a moment where he uh, he goes into uh, one of his elders offices and like finds it on the desk. And he has the the way he phrases it is like, as I somehow knew I would. Right. He, he almost <laughs> like has a presentiment that now that he has become journeyman, uh, the the axe is finally going to fall for Thecla. Um, and so he spends a lot of time in his own head 
trying to parse this. And actually, in these chapters, we get some of the uh, clearest articulations of uh, Severian's very ambivalent feelings about the guild, which he hasn't been as explicit about in the previous chapters. You would come, I think coming off the previous chapters, you would think like Severian understands he's in a weird position, but seems mostly all right with what he does. Um, and it's in these chapters that he suddenly starts talking about kind of the hate that he has for the guild or sort of the resentment he has. Uh, and at the same time, acknowledging, like, I have this resentment for this thing. Uh, and also, like, the guild made me, right? This is this right. is my life. This is all I have. The people around me here are the people of my life. And I don't know what to do with this. So, again, we can see this kind of theme of um, not precisely revolution, right? But um, the relationship of, like, the individual to kind of, like, the larger social collective that forms them. Right. Yeah, let me read that, mm -hmm. Michael, just because I think it is really clear. And I've got the page number here. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this is because this is when uh, the Master Gurlos and Master Palamon are asking, hey, do you actually want to be a journeyman in the guild? You know, because you have the option of leaving. You can be cast out. And, you know, there's this kind of internal debate of like, well, you're a torturer forever, actually. And then they kind of psychologically manipulate him into making the decision very firmly. Um, you know, there, there's, there's a real way that these two men work on Severian to be like, well, it's kind of your only option, actually, if you mm -hmm. think about it. But you're free to go. You're free to go. Don't get us wrong. Yeah. You can leave mm -hmm. whenever mm -hmm. you want, but they're always going to know, you know, there it gives you an idea of like what the psychological, uh, qualities are of the Guild of Torturers. But, uh, in fact, they might be good at this. Mm -hmm. Uh, but this is what he says. This is internal kind of, uh, uh, monologue that he has. I told him firmly and as though I were slightly shocked by the suggestion that I had never considered leaving the guild. It was a lie. I had known, as all the apprentices knew, that one was not firmly and finally a member of the guild until one consented as an adult to the connection. Furthermore, though I loved the guild, I hated it too. Not because of the pain it inflicted on clients who must sometimes have been innocent and who must often have been punished beyond anything that could be justified by their offenses, but because it seemed to me inefficient and ineffectual, serving a power that was not only ineffectual, but remote. I do not know how better to express my feelings about it than by saying that I hated it for starving and humiliating me and loved it because it was my home, hated and loved it because it was the exemplar of old things, because it was weak and because it seemed indestructible. Mm hmm. Right. So like that's right. the core of it there. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. And exactly uh, uh, as I was saying, like thematically resonance there with. Uh, the problem that implicitly it seems like people are having with the state or people might have with the state. We don't actually know what Vodalus stands for at this point or anything like mm -hmm. that. Um, mm -hmm. uh, but it's very clear that like when uh, like Severian's critique of the guild there is bound up in a critique of the Commonwealth and the autarky, right? Uh, that it is uh, serving a power that is remote, uh, that is both weak and indestructible, like what to do with this. Um so, also, this this thing specifically of him loving and hating the exemplar of old things mm -hmm. feels like a, a common refrain with him. Um, mm -hmm. We we constant constantly see him, um, if not kneeling to, at least uh, finding himself um, 
below and and relating to the old things as if they are in power and as if they they've earned or deserve or that that seems like the only natural thing and then also this urge to to the new to something new to something to something he doesn't know what he can't put it into words but damn it this is this current situation seems messed up uh and and that seems to be a driving force not only in Severian but how people see and read Severian uh he comes across like an old timey guy in some ways right <laughs> like um uh, and that's because he was raised in what is unde- undeniably one of the most conservative lowercase c parts of the the commonwealth right that that he has no vision of what life is like he only has the old stories and the old rituals that is his whole worldview uh meaning not not meaning ideology but meaning literal his perspective on life and the world is so limited that um he has inherited those uh, this sort of conservatism without it necessarily being um, a, a, an ideological choice per se, you know, <clears throat> the ideological choice he's making is what ends up happening here, actually. Right. Because Thecla, uh, then is in some ways, um, you know, it, it is, it makes perfect sense, not just in kind of like the logic of like fantasy story, like arc or fairy tale or whatever. Uh, but just in terms of like the, the real, the realism, quote unquote, like the, the life that this guy leads and kind of, uh, what he is attracted to, it makes so much sense that he falls hard for Thecla, uh, because she is the, uh, most literal embodiment of right. the, the power beyond the the uh order that he has encountered right and she's like obviously she is like beautiful and tall and can swallow an entire right. week in one gulp right yeah she is an exultant like we, we have to be very clear here too that she she is not just like um although i guess like is symbolic of that thing as you're saying mm-hmm. she is literally maybe a different species uh mm-hmm. right like the exultants are genetically different mm-hmm, than right. other people they are big and they're not just like slightly bigger they seem to be a full head taller and like the reason i put the thing about the leak in there is that a leak is a big plant mm-hmm. the ability <laughs> to eat a leak is is illustrative of the size of her right right, right. Uh, it, it's like she is what what's up docking with a thing that is a foot long and you know whatever four inches wide three inches wide um and that's not wolf isn't only doing a lewd joke. Wolf isn't only being <laughs> yes. like young Severian's yes. eyes came out of his head like a little wolf, <laughs> like a cartoon wolf. Right. Though that is also right. happening in that moment. Yeah. He is also 100%. saying exultants are giant people. The way like the way okay, they're not as big as the gods of Dark Souls, let's say, but they are bigger than average people in that exact way of like if you've played Dark Souls games, sometimes you come across someone who's like a giant, and you're like, oh, I guess this person's like a big deal. <laughs> Yeah, yes, yes, they they are, and there's all this talk of, and we'll get more of this as the book goes on, but there's all this talk of exultant blood and discussing people's physiognomy. Oh, you know, you look like you might have exultant's blood mm-hmm. that, you know, people remark on Severian's face and things like that. There is a, um, there is some kind of biophysical difference here between whatever Thecla is and whatever Severian is, right. right? And the words like human and exultant, they get used and things like that. But, you know, I think we got to abolish that a little bit, a bit and just think about the way things are actually described. Thecla is much taller. Uh, and her face her face has a shape, mm-hmm. right? 
I mean, think about Severian. He doesn't describe the facial shapes of all the people who are in the tower with him, right? Mm-hmm. We don't mm-hmm. get Master Gurlos' uh, facial shape. We don't get Master Palamon's facial shape, right? Thecla and Thea, they get facial shapes. You know, there, so yeah, there's something going weird. on I here. I have it in my head, too, and I don't know. It's triangular in my head. It's like it's like almost yeah. um, almost heart-shaped. Maybe he describes them as being almost heart-shaped at some point, but mm-hmm. maybe I've just projected that he absolutely does okay in my mind it's almost alien it's almost like Mm -hmm. i i am i am picturing a clone wars alien because my brain because of more civilized age has been tainted with star wars so badly (laughs) but to a sharp angular point and a flat top or a you know again the heart-shaped top in a way that's like inhuman um but but also compelling in some in some way if you're a 16 year old boy who's lived in a rocket ship your whole life you know there there is nothing here in this book that would not have her being just a straight up gray with that triangle exactly face it. yes yeah, right exactly. uh, i'm i'm dropping something in the chat here uh okay, good, good, as good this is this is my touchstone for this oh my god oh yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. okay uh-huh the uh, the Fiona ad for PlayStation, uh, classic gamer moments uh, from from <laughs> 1999. There was this PlayStation ad um, where they like had a they had an actress like a Scottish actress, uh, and they digitally altered like the footage and it, it, it's presented as like a grainy VHS like scan lines and kind of stuff thing, um, but they like altered the footage in some way or like had her wearing appliances or something and then altered it digitally uh basically like to move around the parts of her face and like enlarge the shape of her head not so much that it was like oh clearly altered but more in the way that they were aiming straight for the uncanny valley in like making Mm -hmm. her really thin and looking very much like in terms of like proportion of her face and everything like a gray alien with kind of um the canted eyes uh very like large and almond shaped um, hyper real, right? That there's a, a my my sense of the uh, exultance has always been that, uh, like you said, Cameron, that there was um, uh, history has gone on so long that the the single human species has kind of like fragmented or splintered uh, with people who were in whatever persistent upper class, like doing gene editing or something to give themselves different bodies, right? Uh, and I always thought that that's kind of like what was going on with Thecla. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we're we're poisoned by knowledge a little bit. We get enough pieces of stuff like this later in these books. I don't think that's a spoiler to say. But we get en- enough things in this universe of science fiction thinking over the course of the next several books that, you know, that that does inflect the way that I read this a little bit. But but I think it's an important, even if you don't buy that, right? Like someone who was listening is undoubtedly going, what are you talking about, right? Like, she's just a tall woman who loves a leak, right? Like, which is fine, right? Like, I'm not here to sell you on my particular aesthetic reading of the thing. But I think that what is useful about uh, this part of the book in particular for reading the rest of the books is that, Severian is describing to you exactly what he sees, mm-hmm. and it is very comforting and very normal to read a book, to read that and go, oh, he's telling us that she is an exultant, she's a person, he's interacting with her the way he would interact with anyone else, and so therefore she must look like everyone else. But if you look at the description 
And you think about the fact that Severian, in his kind of perspective of the world that you were talking about earlier, Austin, that he would not see it as weird because exultants exist. Mm-hmm. You know, they're right. in the right. same way that Triskel is a dog but is not quite a dog, right? He's some other kind of thing. Thecla is an exultant who is a person, but not maybe not exactly a human. We, um, I mean, and, we get in the first yeah. ch- first or second chapter, he says the pale cacogens who sometimes visit Earth from beyond. So it's like, mm-hmm. okay, there's some alien shit going on in this book. Uh, I'm not saying that that's what what exultants are, um, I, and I'm not saying that that's what Thecla is. In fact, I I don't believe that that's true. Uh, but I, but to your point of like, oh, eventually we're gonna we're gonna hit some more sci-fi type stuff. Uh, there's a lot of space here for for the exultants to be, and and again, the other thing that's happening here is it's a description of social relations. Mm-hmm. Um, right. uh, the other thing that comes up here, and this might be a good place about it, is like this is a culture where the beauty standards are that pale white skin is beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. Right. Thecla describes Severian skin as being even paler than hers and more beautiful than hers. Characters throughout this section of the book, the next coming up section of the book, constantly have their skin colors referred to in ways that map towards contemporary beauty standards um uh and 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 remembering that this is a place where you know uh based on word usage based on descriptions around where things are warm and where things are cold based on just descriptions of the place this is south america right Mm -hmm. um and so you a lot of the characters you meet are theoretically brown-skinned um uh but paleness and whiteness are upheld as markers of beauty, markers of nobility, um, constantly. Uh, and I don't think that that's a mistake on Wolf's part. I think Wolf is, is, is making a claim about the South American, very Catholic culture. Uh, I mean, maybe post-Catholic, maybe transformed Catholic. Um, but we will continue to talk about questions of colonialism, for instance, in the near future. Uh, and, and what happened in, in this place, broadly speaking, to make it the way it is. Um, and I think those things are wrapped up, right? Tall, pale people are beautiful uh, and are and and are powerful. Those are not just, you know, uh, indirect markers of those things. To be an exultant is to stand ahead above them, as if through, you know, genetic difference, right? Mm-hmm. And like I, that is, yeah. you cannot, you cannot, you don't have to read politics into that. That's politics, baby. <laughs> You know, <laughs> right, right, and it's built into. I mean, I think this is the trickiness of Wolf, and trickiness in a good way, right? It's all built into the apparatus. Right. Um, it is looking at the words themselves as they are uh, moving in time, right, and comparing them and thinking about them kind of schematically. That that gets you to the reading that you just provided us. Which, if you're just reading the book kind of casually, right, and without really paying attention to the stuff, you're like, oh yeah, they're exultants, they're they're big, they're white, you know, they're <laughs> in charge, whatever, all that kind of stuff, right? Which will still get you the, to the political realm, but paying attention to the the kind of building block Lego formation of it really gives you, I think, a really robust understanding. And then put that into conversation with Severian, who both loves and hates the old, right? Mm-hmm. Right. It's right. like. He, on paper, might think it's silly to have an entire genetic pool of of nobles, of the exultants, but also you put one in a room with him, and the man is compelled. 
you know? Right. And, and he also thinks he is one, right? Mm-hmm. right you know, right. He, he's looking at that mausoleum and going, ah, oh, is that me? Right. Well, on my face. Yeah, yeah. Everyone mentioned that the, the exultant blood comment is made about him is because he is taller, like paler and right. taller than your average person. He's not as tall right. as Thecla. He's probably like uh, six and a half feet tall or something like that. Thecla's like seven or eight feet tall fully. Um, uh, but so he, he's constantly kind of, uh, leaning on this little like fantasy of like, what if I was like a half exultant? I'm like, what would, what would that be like? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. people keep bringing it up, right? They keep talking about his face shape. Mm-hmm. We're going to, that's going to happen throughout the rest of this book specifically. We're going to a lot of talk of, of, of physiognomy, right? That the, yes. that the body, that the shape of the body, that the dimensions and proportions of the body, uh, determine something about you. Physiognomy, of course, is a big part of eugenics, right? Right. Yep. The idea that that di- that difference and valorized difference and valued biological difference is readable in the body. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And this is a eugenic world, uh, like not. I mean, I guess maybe the one that we would live yeah. in, but uh, uh, Severian's world is a eugenic world. It is one where there is a uh, physical cast of people that who are visibly different and therefore higher in mm-hmm. the hierarchy of 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 the world um uh yeah and sort of related to that uh there's that whole thing of going to uh the house azure where he meets the false thecla right so it's right. not just like so right. there's like he he ends up being pissed basically right he, he <laughs> encounters this uh weird double of thecla uh who from the description appears to be basically on point, right? He's not like, oh, she's too short or whatever, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, physically, she seems to hit the mark. And at the same time, he knows it can't be Thecla because Thecla is over in his tower. And uh, it, it, this is also like a beautiful thing about this book, right? Is um, uh, it, psychologically, Severian is looking for those differences, even if he is maybe saying he isn't or isn't uh, as being explicit about that, right? Like, he is inclined to see those differences because he is going to, like, the, the, uh, the, the the true authentic Thecla is the thing that he's encountered, is this uh, person that he has all of these relations with or kind of this fixation on. And so when he meets this double, um, something about her disgusts him, right? Ultimately disgusts him, but crucially does not stop him from sleeping with her. Uh, he does yell at her in very cruel ways. Uh, mm-hmm. Maybe the first flash of a, of a different Severian for us here, that when he is ticked off, he is uh, mean and a little scary. Um, uh, there, there are definitely moments when I read this the first time where I was like, oh my God, he's going to hurt this person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it doesn't come to that, uh, physically anyway. Um, but he does diminish her as, as much as he can. Um, and then, and then tries to like big shot her with philosophy talk. Um, <laughs> and you just have to know she's rolling her eyes during it and being like, all right, buddy. All right. 16 year old brat. Like, you don't <laughs> know the world. Right. 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 Um, uh, do we want to, is there anything else we want to talk about in terms of that, the visit to the house ashore? Uh, I, I mean, I think it's a really interesting, like, piece. I think it's also something that later we will come back mm-hmm. to a little yeah, bit. Yeah. Um, I think that's probably uh, true. Like, in terms of, like, future episodes, because it does kind of get referenced a few times throughout the book. Um, but as in terms of, like, things we need, maybe need to, like, hone in on just slightly, um, you know, uh, the, it, the, it is a 
you know, a brothel, something like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And the idea, the fantasy being sold to the people there is that the women who are there are flown in from the autarchs, uh, you know, you know, the concubines of the autarch. They're being flown in every night to pleasure like the simple folk of Nessus. Right. Mm -hmm. So there is this connection, this this kind of fantasy thing. I mean, it's very pornographic. Right. You know, there's a framework of pornography that that is in in the thing. Um, and that's the uh, he's being sent there because Thecla is demanding, you know, as an exultant, she can make some demands of the torturers because mm-hmm. they want to piss her off too bad. Because what if she gets out? You know, there's always this like fear. Mm-hmm. If you piss off a client who has power too much, well, what happens if they actually get released? And so he is a he spends time with her. And they, uh, you know, the the masters are very clear. They say, look, do not have sex with her because everything can, it could be very bad and she might want to have sex with you. And then we get a little bit of Severian. It's hard to know how much of this is like straight written and how much uh-huh. of it's Severian uh, editorializing, right? You know, that, that of course she would want to have <laughs> sex with Severian, right? Like, why wouldn't she? She's trapped there, right? Mm-hmm. We get that one moment where she takes his shirt off, right? Uh, yes, yes, like uh, in the middle of a paragraph, right? And then he <laughs> yes. like turns around, starts banging on the door, <laughs> like, "Get me out of here!" I don't want my, yeah. Uh, the, uh, uh, but also, you know, I think it's Palamon who says all this stuff, right? And he says very explicitly, "Hey, uh, you need to be careful because if, uh, especially, a child would be bad." Mm-hmm. Right. And it's not yes. just that a child would be bad, but if we think about the kind of mechanistic stuff we were talking about before, yeah. It, it, the child might not be an exultant, right? There, there might be a biological thing that is at issue here. Mm-hmm. But anyway, the, so the, they the, there is one thing here. There is one thing. Oh yeah, do you want to just continue talking about what the setup here is, and then and then we'll get well, to the, the only the only additional thing I want to say is that they they uh you know so so the masters say all right look we're going to give you money to go lose your virginity so this is less of an issue and you can go to the house of Zur as much as you want so you do not have sex with thecla like, right. we'll 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 pay for it every time right, right for you to go uh and patronize the brothel and you know pay for sex and but but the notable thing about that is that and it's unclear where this comes from does it come from his friend who is taking him does it come from the masters they take him to the brothel that sells the fantasy of having sex with an exultant mm-hmm. which is right. right across the street effectively like not literally right yes. but it's within walking yeah. distance it's out behind i think it's near maybe the the like out past the witches tower am i making yeah, that up it, maybe it, i'm making that up. it's weird there's like they do have to take i think a little wagon or something but maybe that's just because right. it's cold but it's it, it's one of those i noted it because it's one of those great moments where um uh, it illustrates how all of the weird bizarre terms from this book are real terms but you can never count on wolf to use them uh like in the way that you would by looking up the dictionary definition, because it seems yes. like the district or quarter where this, uh, where the brothel is housed is called the echopraxia, which is uh, the name yeah. for hey, like, what's the, that mean? Yeah. It's the involuntary mirroring of like another person's <laughs> like physical gestures and stuff. It's, it's associated actually with like schizophrenia. Um, but like, it, that's definitionally what that means right here and now. What on earth does it mean to call a district of the city the echopraxia, right? Like, yeah. what the hell? <laughs> yeah, it's, it is the place of replication, right. right? And that's what they do. They go to the House of Zur, which is a replication of uh-huh. 
the the autarky, right? right? Or a piece of the House Absolute, I guess, in, in particular. Well, and then explicitly he says that there was nothing about, of Thecla about her at all. Um, all that had been a chance resemblance, some gestures of similarity in dress. It, it was just nothing. Like it doesn't hold up in any in any way. Uh, so it's like, yeah, you might be able to to reflect up a motion here or there, but it is not echopraxia in any. I mean, it is it is only echopraxia, maybe right. It is not actual replication. Um, so so yeah, um, I, I I think it's it's the thing that sticks out to me in this ends up being this exchange. I listen to this podcast called Homestuck Made This World uh, that was pretty good. Uh, and in it, a thing that happened repeatedly in the text that they were, were reading, which was a webcomic, it was two hosts. Uh, one of them really liked this webcomic, and the other one uh, also really liked it, is my understanding, <laughs> uh, but hadn't read it previously. Uh, and and they often talked about the way that every now and then the, the author of the webcomic would pop up and give their little opinions about uh the the what is authorship what does it mean to tell a story um and we get a little bit of that here uh uh and also kind of a broader claim here from a character and this is not me saying that wolf is saying this necessarily but i've become attuned from listening to homestuck made this world to moments when an author might embody a character to say something about the nature of authorship and belief and etc. And it, towards the end of this exchange between the false Thecla and Severian, um, he is dismissing this entire fantasy. He is saying, you are not a re- you are not really her. It's silly. The idea that, that, that he's kind of rejecting the whole thing, right? Really house absolute flies down all of the shadow lanes, all of the, all of the concubines <laughs> to sleep with poor people to keep morale. What are you talking about? Right? This is ridiculous. <laughs> um, and, and she says to, to him, um, you're angry because I'm not Thecla. Uh, but you're very strong. And he's like, no, I'm not. I know some boys who are stronger than me. And and she goes, very strong. Aren't you strong enough to master reality even for a little while? And he says, what do you mean? And she says, weak people believe what is forced on them. Strong people, what they wish to believe, forcing that to be real. Uh, what What is the Altark but a man who believes himself Altark and makes others believe by the strength of it? And he says, you are not the Chatelaine Thecla. And she says, but don't you see, neither is she. The Chatelaine Thecla, whom I doubt you've ever laid eyes on, no, I see I'm wrong. Have you been to the House Absolute? Uh, and they go back and forth on that a little bit. And then she shrugs eventually and says, I was saying that the, that the Chatelaine Thecla is not the Chatelaine Thecla. Not the Chatelaine Thecla of your mind, which is only which is the only Chatelaine Thecla you care about. Neither am I. What then is the difference between us? None, I suppose, he says. And she's. Uh, and while I was undressing, I said, he says, Nevertheless, we all seek to discover what is real. Why is it? Perhaps we are drawn to the theocenter. That's what the Hierophants say, that, uh, that only that is true. And she then kisses his thighs and, and moves on because she's like, you don't, shut the fuck up. You're done. You're not talking. You're just quoting stuff you've read. You don't have your own opinions about this, you know? Uh, but all this right. stuff around... What is what is it to be a, a, a person? To be a person in your to have a person in your mind is to have some projection of them, some amalgamation, some assemblage of them. Really, that you, that that is a, a collaboration between who they are in the world and some idea you have of them. Um, and then further, to be strong in the world is to force your belief onto the world and, and onto others in such a way that their idea of you is your is the idea that you want them to have of you to the degree that it again 
shift social relations, right? Uh, uh, the the Altark's power is in making other people believe he is the Altark. Uh, and I am I am interested to see how this continues to come up again and again, and whether this is the false Thecla's position ends up being one that is supported by the book, or if this is like an mm-hmm. indication of one way that people think about the world, but ends up being disproven inside of the world of 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 the Book of the New Sun, or what. Well, this is wrapped up. Everything that you just said is also happening simultaneously with Severian basically saying, uh, there's no one else on this floor of the brothel. And if I wanted to beat you, I could. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yep. Yep. Right. And and so there's there's a little bit of this. uh, She is doing something rhetorically here that is is basically saying, hey, I know that you're big and strong and powerful. You do not have to hit me. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, uh, so there's a little bit of a negotiation here that's happening too around what, what is her capability in this situation and what is Severian's capability? And because we are so caught up in Severian, right? Like everything yeah. is so intensely focalized from him at multiple levels, right? Narrator experience, all this kind of stuff. It, it's easy to like whoop, detour right out of that. Oh, this is about philosophy or whatever. But if we think schematically about what her position is to Severian, all she knows is that he came into that room, says, you're not Thecla, and then immediately implies and then threatens to beat her mm-hmm. as a person, right? So Farron's not a great guy. No. Uh, you know, we've no. said this before. I'm, we'll learn every time, right? But but that's also partially what's really interesting to me about it. And it also reveals some of the, uh, I think, limited imaginary for Wolf in that we're going to see this scenario play out a thousand times over the course of these books, which is that Severian will threaten a woman or be in a position of the capability to harm a woman. And then we will see, you know, quote unquote, feminine wiles used to Mm -hmm. disempower him or disempower someone else to detour it around, you know, to, to do some other thing. Um, And ultimately she says, and Severian also intimates this too, right? That, if they don't have sex, she doesn't get paid, and she is a poor woman, and so she has this kind of, of you know, characterological desire to find a route to having sex with Severian in order to make the money that she needs to make. Right? She is just as poor as she as he is, you know, at least in his imaginary. Right? Um, and so, as you said, right, everything that you just said, this is the kind of. Um, I think for me, the interest of the book, you know, and why it is it's worth rereading and, and engaging with repeatedly for me personally is that everything we've just talked about, all of those things are happening simultaneously. Uh, right. None of them have primacy over the other. This is both a conversation about what is Severian's perspective on the universe, right? And force projection. What does she have around that? And then what are the substructures that all that's built on? That's every conversation we've had about the autarky in this episode so far. That's every conversation that we've had about uh, the exultants and the Chatelaines this episode, right? All of these things are echopraxia in some way, right? That mm-hmm. they are poetically, you know, Michael used, uh, I think, ironically earlier, right around the torture. Uh, there are these structures that are being kind of replicated in many different uh, systems all around, even just the stuff that we're reading for this episode. And we, it all gets funneled through Severian. You know, it all gets funneled through this perspectival device that's very difficult to hold on to it sometimes because we want to read this like a fantasy novel. We want to read it like a science fiction novel as this is just stuff that's happening and we analyze the thing in front of us when, in fact, I think there's other stuff also going on there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to finish up, then I started out this whole thing trying to talk about uh-huh. Thecla and then we got into this and now I guess maybe I can like cap that off and then we can move on. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh-huh. 
<laughs> Let's find out what happens to Thanos. Yeah. So uh, Severian uh, becomes a journeyman. I can talk actually a little bit about like that whole process and what that looks like. Um, yeah, let's detour this for another. Let's yeah. detour uh, again. I mean, that's this book, though. That is what's happening, right? Right. Yeah, like, yeah. All Severian wants to do is go to the room with Thecla in it, but he keeps getting sent to the brothel or to become a journeyman to, to be asked whether he's truly loyal to the guild or to go to the feast of Saint Catherine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so uh, uh, he becomes a journeyman. Um, throughout this entire time, he's still seeing Thecla. Then the torture order is given for Thecla. She is uh, put through the revolutionary. Um, and he is upset the moment he knows that she is going to be tortured and he's already spinning wheels in his head like, you know, is it possible that I could fight off the other members of my guild? Could I actually break her out? And he realizes that that is probably not the case because there's way more of them and all he can get is like a knife from the kitchen. So uh, ultimately what <laughs> this he ends is up such a child's. <laughs> like fantasy, by the way, I'm yeah. reminded of being in my freshman year of college when a friend of mine said that if we ever had something bad happen on the campus, if someone ever showed up with a gun, he would figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> he would a, like a what? lunch tray. He would figure it he out. Would, he would. He would be the guy. He's ready to solve the situation. And it's like you're 18. You are. You have been watched too many bad action movies. You believe in yourself too greatly, my friend. Uh, and and this is Severian being like, okay, if I could get a good knife, maybe I. No, mm, could I? Could I? Could I kill everyone who's trained me and and who I like and love? Can I kill? everyone in my home to save this one woman that I'm that I have a big crush on uh yeah so he he goes through all of that um part of the reason uh that uh, things have also shifted with him and Thecla is that another woman has come into the tower and she's been put in the cell next to uh, Thecla. Um, and he did this as kind of a little kindness. Uh, he he was like, oh, maybe they can kind of like talk to each other. Someone can else can keep her company. And you mentioned this in your summary, I believe, Cameron, um, that what Thecla says when she's talking to the other woman about Severian is that he is a rather sweet boy. And he doesn't yeah. dwell on this, but it is clearly like a comment that actually makes him angry that he he doesn't like just being a rather sweet boy to her. Um, but ultimately he does after she's been put through the revolutionary, he passes her the kitchen knife and uh, steps out into the hallway and waits until he sees the blood seeping out from underneath her door. And then he goes and he informs his elders uh, what he has done. Um, and then that's uh, kicks us off into like the next like leg of the book. Uh, uh, but mm -hmm. so that's, everything with Thecla up to up to that point. So, uh, Michael, you are not editorializing, but I am dying. This is such a pivotal moment for the entire mm -hmm. Book of the New Sun. <laughs> like th this paragraph, it's literally happens over, you know, whatever, six sentences or something. Uh, Michael, how do you read what he does? I like, how would you describe the thing that he does? <laughs> I mean, that's the thing, right? Is like, I don't have a specific uh, take on this because I think uh, I talked about this uh, in some other show that I can't remember the name of about how there are incidents sometimes where you have to make an interpretive <laughs> choice and that interpretive choice then like staggers out and like pops out sort of like a different version of a story, right? It's it's a, mm -hmm. you, there are mm -hmm. points in stories sometimes where you can make an interpretive move uh, and that will change everything downstream of that kind of narratorial crux, right? Um, 
So like on the one hand, uh, we can like the simplest way, maybe maybe the most uh, sentimental way, the way that maybe Severian as a character, right, as a kind of uh, a persona would want us to read this is as an act of mercy. Yes, right. This, that is how it is framed right. by the narrator for sure. Right. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, she's got like, uh, uh, she's got this horrible situation where apparently forever she is going to be clawing at herself until she actually does kill herself. Um, in which case, uh, you, we might understand this as a mercy, right? He has, uh, like part of her torture is continuing to live with the revolutionary going in her mind. Uh, and, and Severian cuts that short. Uh, we could also read it as uh, a rather convenient way to murder a woman who made you angry mm-hmm. because he knows that she's going to destroy herself and who denied you or who belittled you. Yes. Yeah. Right. Yep. Uh, so like we have that. But, and you, I guess we'll note, we'll note his fantasy was never, and I'll find a way to undo what the revolutionary does. He never says, I wonder if they have books somewhere that has a mm-hmm. cure for what the revolutionary, that's not his fantasy. His fantasy is not absconding with her, escaping and heading to the library to find a solution, um, which is to say we're working in the realm of pure fantasy, right? He could have imagined himself anything, but Severian's imagination does not go that far. Yeah. No. Or is uh, not compelled in that direction, period. And instead is compelled towards, what if I get a knife? Yeah. So uh, here's just yeah. just to read it. Right. Um, yeah. She says, <clears throat> how long before I die? And this is after she's kind of explained, like, uh, you know, my hands are trying to blind me now. Tear my eyelids away. Will I be blind? And he says, yes. How long before I die? A month, perhaps. The thing in you that hates you will weaken as you weaken. The revolutionary brought it to life, but its energy is your energy. And in the end, you will die together. Severian? Yes. I see, she said. And then. It is a thing from Erebus, from Abaya, a fit companion for me. Vodalus, I leaned closer, but I could not hear. At last I said, I tried to save you. I wanted to. I stole a knife and spent the night watching for a chance, but only a master can take a prisoner from a cell, and I would have had to kill your friends. Yes, my friends. Her hands were moving again, and blood trickled from her mouth. Will you bring me the knife? I have it here, I said, and drew it from under my cloak. It was a common cook's knife with a span uh, or so of blade. It looks sharp. It is, I said. I know how to treat an edge, and I sharpened it carefully. That was the last thing I said to her. I put the knife into her right hand and went out. For a time, I knew, her will would hold it back. A thousand times one thought recurred. I could re-enter her cell, take back the knife, and no one would know. I would be able to live out my life in the guild. If her throat rattled, I did not hear it. But after I had stared at the door of her cell for a long time, a little crimson rivulet crept from under it. I went to Master Gurlow's then and told him what I had done. The uh, the contradiction in here, uh, you know, talking earlier about Thecla and contradiction in faith, right? The contradiction in the piece that you read is, is uh, like, writerly wise, wonderful mm-hmm. to me, right? So, will you bring me the knife is immediately met with, uh, I put the knife into her right hand, right? She doesn't take the knife from him. Mm-hmm. Uh, I knew her will would hold it back. Well, if she if she wants to use the knife on herself, why would she be holding it back, mm-hmm. right? Why would she, in the same way that she's trying to hold off, you know, tearing her own eye, eyes out, why would she be doing that? Why would she wait for the revolutionary 
to do its work, right? Mm-hmm. And so, like, the, the, the end result is the same, right? She, the revolutionary takes over. Uh, you know, she stabs herself with a knife in some, some form or fashion. Um, but the, the, the language choice in here produces an ambiguity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and I think in a general sense, right, like, even though someone says something in quotation marks, I don't think we need to take that as being a thing that ne- necessarily occurred. <laughs> and, and literally, we are told that in the text, right? Like, right. later on, um, you know, the thing that I was talking about, about the autark, in my summary, about the autark Yamar, you know, Severian, the author of the text, says, look, you can, you can take the same paragraph and you can read it a bunch of different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And sometimes none of those ways are even correct, right? Some, sometimes what actually happened is not even representable within a textual representation. And it sounds like I'm making that up, but I'm not. There's like two full pages yeah. of Severian, the writer, like walking us through like, hey, did you know that maybe texts don't tell you the truth every time? <laughs> and so that to me is, you know, it, the ambiguity of what happens here with Thecla uh, is, uh, is, is fascinating to me. Uh, and, and like, I think Severian's a murderer. You mm-hmm. know, I, I think you're right, Michael, that uh, the call you make here, and this is why I think this is so important, the call you make about this interpretation really sets you up for thinking about wh- who is Severian as a character. Um, and I think, you know, having read the book a few times now, uh, I think Severian's a murderer. I, I think he does this as a, as a matter of convenience and of, of being spurned. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that this resolves uh, a lot of issues for him. And he also hates the guild. He wants to leave. Do you think that he thinks he's a murderer, or do you think that he immediately produces an ambiguity in his own fictive memory? Does he know I when he puts the I knife in her I can't answer hand? that until we... Right, okay. right. Yeah, okay. I, I don't think I can answer that until we get through Claw the Conciliator. Mm. I think that's probably Just right. to be honest with you. Yeah. Right, mm-hmm. I just... I, I can't... Can. I have like a... I have a gut opinion on this, but I am poisoned by future knowledge, right? Yeah. That yeah. Uh, we will return to this, and we... And, Again, not a spoiler to say we will return to Safarian's <laughs> reflections about what happens with Thecla over and over again. Yeah, go ahead. This is the shadow of the torturer. Yeah. Right? This is the shadow that hangs We're, over the We should the say torturer. that throughout the rest of this whole podcast. Yeah, yeah We should please. be like, this is the shadow of the torturer. <laughs> well, this is obviously the shadow of the torturer. <laughs> Baldanders? Shadow of the torturer. Mm-hmm. Shadow of the torturer. Well, he's under the shadow of Baldanders, you know? And so it's yeah. the shadow of the torturer. Mm-hmm. Agia? Uh, you know what? Could be the shadow of the torturer. <laughs> <laughs> Certainly shadows him. The last line of his whole experience. That certainly was a shadow of the torture. Uh, uh, yeah, so there, there's something really interesting going on, just uh, uh, thinking more about what's going on with Thecla, because obviously this is really important for like the plot going forward for Severian as a character, and it's also evoking um, the story that got enacted when Severian was... Uh, raised to a journeyman, right? His his mm-hmm. uh, actual ascent into like the ranks of the guild, uh, which you talked about, Cameron. There's like a it's a uh, very much a, a kind of traditional like European style like feast day where everyone in the mm-hmm. guild like has a big fancy meal and they're all like hooting and hollering and drinking and Severian takes part of this in this kind of mask with um this weird uh uh figure that you talked about uh who is made to represent holy catherine who is like the patron of the guild like this kind of um um spiritual like i mean literally it's saint catherine right like 
St. Yeah. Catherine of Alexandria from uh, uh, the Catholic Church and also the Orthodox Church. Uh, but, like, it is literally just her. Uh, I like that you say that, like, uh, like she's from, like, a specific superhero yeah. book. You know, it's like, oh, it's like Superboy <laughs> from those issues well, of Superman. Know, it's like, Christianity you know, St. Catherine from Catholicism. The most exciting <laughs> and long-lived IP of, of uh, recent decades. Oh, my God. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, so he in, uh, reenacts like part of his uh, the, the little mask that he does to become a, a journeyman is about reenacting the story of St. Catherine, uh, who just to like, you know, summarize this all down. St. Catherine um, was super, super important to like medieval Christianity in Europe. Um, one of like the I think it's like. I can't remember if it's like the heavenly helpers, like the 14 heavenly helpers. There were like 14 saints who were um, known or like considered to be like very holy at- helpers. I want holy to say helpers, 14 holy it. helpers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Uh, uh, they were uh, 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 thought to be like particularly active intercessors. So if you don't have any experience with Catholicism or anything like that, that's a. Uh, uh, you know, praying to a saint for intercession. The idea is uh, there are all these saints, all of them have their particular like domains or things or types of people that they watch over or are interested in or invested in. Um, and when you uh, uh, make a prayer to that particular saint for intercession, you are asking that saint specifically to watch over you, your friend, a loved one, whatever, in that context, right? You've got a, a someone in your family who's a sailor, like, uh, you're going to figure out which saints uh, are best for praying to for sailors and go and uh, uh, make offerings to them. So uh, Catherine was known to be... Uh, important, uh, can I just be the, can yeah. I be the, I went yes. to Catholic yeah. school for too go. long, and now... Please. It, intercession, it's important to understand, the saint doesn't do the work. God does the work. The saint intercesses on your behalf to, to God, and mm-hmm. God does mm. the work. The miracle comes from God, not from the saint in Catholic dogma. Yes. I can't very speak important. towards orthodox dogma. <laughs> we got to have that hierarchy in there. Uh, so, And uh, truly, uh, the fact that that is not uh, the way people think about saints is the heart of much— blood loss in the world of history. <laughs> well, so. right, because I, 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 I study this from the other side, which is primarily Protestants writing about the Catholic Church, and the Protestants uh-huh. are like, all that stuff about the saints talking to God, that's BS. Like, they're just praying to the saints, bro. Like, that's what's going on. It's idolatry, right? Like, because it's sort mm-hmm. of like a willful move to cut out that part. Um, uh, right. So, yep. Yep. uh, 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 Catherine, um, her entire story, and it's interesting to note like which parts of this stay in and which parts uh, get cut out. Namely, most of it gets cut out for Severian's little uh, uh, thing. Um, what he does is like, okay, there, here's here's Catherine. There's a woman who plays Catherine who he talks about. Like, I saw her at every feast day. She was always there. She never aged. I don't know who she was, where she came from, or what she did, but she was always the same. Um, and as you say, Cameron, that. Maybe she's a robot. I don't know. This is another one of those beautiful things about these books is you get confronted with mysteries that you're sort of like begged to contemplate. And at the same time, you don't know if there's going to be an answer to it or not. Well, and everything you're about to describe to in the actual ceremony 
Severian thinks he has it figured out, uh-huh. you know, but, because like what happens is like she has to be beheaded and he says, oh, yeah, she'll duck her head beneath uh, some fool again, you know, to hide her head. It'll be like a magic trick, mm-hmm. you know, and and she'll replace her head with a wax head that rolls down on the ground. And then, and, you know, and that's what will happen, of course. And then the actual ceremony goes on and that doesn't seem to be what happens. It seems like he actually chops her head off uh-huh. and she picks it up and puts it back on. Cause he's like, I can't really see where the fool it is here. This does seem like her blood flying out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this does seem like a lot of human blood and she's walking away and she's fine. I wonder where that wax head went, you know? So there's this, it's another moment where Severian's perceptions and his confidence about what his perceptions are. If you're looking at the text in front of you, they don't quite match up to one another. Right? And I really like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, so, uh, I mean, that's the, the end of Catherine's story is that she is, uh, to be put on a wheel, like a torture wheel. Um, and instead of being tortured on the wheel, the second she touches it, uh, it explodes or degrades or something in various accounts. This is like true history in Severian's version in this like little mask they're putting on. They've got, uh, like streamers and fireworks and things that like pop out of it when she touches it. And it seems like they're having a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, then after like the torture mechanism fails, she is beheaded and killed immediately. Um, historically how this worked or like sort of the historical version of this tale is that Catherine was a, uh, young learned woman. Um, I think probably from the upper class because she has this kind of reputation as an, uh, for education, right? Uh, one of the things that, uh, she patronizes are like philosophers and orators. So, uh, she is a uh, she converts to Christianity at some point uh, and becomes a Christian proselytizer. She goes to the emperor Maxentius while he is uh, overseeing some pagan sacrifices. Um, and she basically, you know, does the thing that uh, uh, you would expect where she's like, hey, by the way, you're all sacrificing to devils and you're going to go to hell. And he does that. The emperor does not like this. Uh, and so he imprisons her and then he subjects her to debate with uh, sources differ on this that I was looking into either 50 or 100 pagan philosophers. <laughs> um, and she talks with all of them and converts them all. She proves them all wrong, convinces them of Christianity and they uh, convert. So uh, does cool. does not make the emperor happy. So he keeps her imprisoned uh, while she is imprisoned. Uh, she is visited by by various people, including the emperor's wife, whom all of whom, including the wife, she converts to Christianity and the emperor has them all killed. So then he gives the torture order for her. And that's when she is to be uh, brought upon the wheel and broken. But she touches the wheel and it falls to pieces. Uh, And uh, then she says, now I'm like, then she offers her neck uh, for her own beheading, right? Uh, He, the emperor orders her to be killed, but also she says, yes, kill me, like behead me. um, Because by this point, and this is super important for this whole uh, hagiography and sort of um, um, the story of St. Catherine as well. uh, She is a virgin. Um, and she has, uh, in most accounts at this point, received visions that have betrothed her to Christ, right? She is like a wife of Christ. And so her virginity, um, and like this idea of being married to Christ already while she is alive. And then, you know, like, please, please absolutely behead me so I can, uh, be bop up onto heaven and like be with my husband, right? My holy husband. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she is beheaded and, uh, then angels take her body and take it to Mount Sinai where there is a, uh, monastery devoted to her, uh, 
So that's kind of the whole thing. There's also some stuff about like when she's beheaded, she doesn't just like it's not just blood that comes out. It's milk. Um, it's a mixture of them uh, and stuff about like mm. when she was in prison, she was visited by a dove that brought her food and all these things. Uh, but Wolf, who knows his, you know, catechism, mm-hmm. he knows his Catholic history uh, is obviously like playing with elements of this with the story of Thecla, with kind of the philosophical debates that she has with Severian. Yep. Um, uh, but then also like you know, very consciously seeming to uh, deviate from them in the relationship between Thecla and Severian vis-a-vis Catherine's virginity. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's all this wonderful ambiguity then that gets brought up in ultimately uh, the oddness for me, I think, of the fact that Severian's guild, like their core story, the thing that they reenact every single year, year. year. right? Yep. Uh, the thing that they celebrate, like this is one of the mysteries of our guild, is a story about uh, the failure of torture, right? That torture is an instrument yeah. of a corrupt earthly power and that there is a power that can overcome or, surpa- or surpass it. But that the role the torturers play is is in continuing to do those actions that it is their part in the holy mystery is to produce the wheel that breaks and the, and the sword that cuts off the head. Right. That is, that is, and, and, you know, again, the next chapter is he goes to her cell with the knife. Right. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, the and the and the notable thing, right, is like there's no all that kind of afterlife you just talked about, right? That's none of that's there. Literally, Catherine in the feast picks up her head and walks off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and comes back next year. You know, there there's something about the the um the what is reenacted, right? The thing that matters is the explosion of the you know with fireworks or whatever of the wheel itself. It is the doing of the execution. Whatever happens to her, it doesn't really matter. Right. You know, like, like that's written out, which is actually inverted from Thecla. What happens to Thecla after death uh, is going to, and in Severian's mind in particular, right, is going to haunt the rest of this novel. Um, we are constantly going to get flashes back to his meetings with Thecla over the next five books or so, four books um, because he can't let it go. And in this ceremony, they let Catherine go immediately, you mm-hmm. know, because she doesn't matter. She's not yeah. a part of the thing. So that's another moment of kind of flipping through. Uh, which is very fun. Yeah, I just want to point one other thing out here is that uh, they go over the fact that it's the rule of the of the torturer's guild that the executioner must stand between his victim and the light. The maid's head lay in the shadow on the block. That, of course, is the shadow of the torturer. <laughs> oh, so that's the shadow, that's the shadow of, the of the torturer. torturer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Got it. Got it. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's stuff that happens after this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like a whole lot of stuff. Like a whole lot of stuff. About. Yep. Uh, the, so yeah, so th- we're going to return to Thecla. We're going to talk about this a million more I times. I just want to say quickly, we don't have to go beat by sure. beat, but the stuff where he is sick in bed and seeing Master Malrubius that you mentioned is great. Uh, there's the padding of soft feet outside his door, which I personally believe is, uh, Tris- Triscoll coming back uh-huh. to check in on him. Um, uh, I just like that whole little section. It's great. No, it's great. I, uh, th- these are resonant images that will return. I also like that a lot. That he is just after the feast. Severian is so hungover, like you know, the most hungover he's ever been in his life. You know, mm-hmm. uh, yes. and many of us have been there, right? Just absolute garbage. He literally sits there and he like 
throws up into a bucket and then he looks up and his like old like his dad right i mean that's how master malrubius is treated yeah. he's kind of the master of the guild when severian's like five six seven you know really young and it's the person who like taught him lots of life lessons we'll learn more about master malrubius as the books go on but he looks up and master malrubius is dead and severian's like hey you know what i mean like kind of like <laughs> yep i'm sick i've I beefed it. I'm a journeyman. I did it. And then later he's like, oh, shit, Master Malrubius has been dead for years. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yeah, I like that, too. I think that's great. Um, I and, love having uh, a perfect memory, personally. Me, too. <laughs> yeah, same. I love having a perfect memory for when people are dead or not. <laughs> yep. Uh, I think he brags about, again, in this section, uh, in a kind of thrown off way, certainly a page or two away from him being distracted and missing something. So, <laughs> right. Yes. Oh no. Yeah. Yeah. So, <laughs> so that's the next thing that happens, right? He goes and talks to master Palamon and master Palamon's like, look, you have violated every single part of what we do in this guild. Like our whole thing is dispassionate murder for the state and having no form of judgment or thought. And you've like fucked all of that up. And to even ask someone else to come and like, uh, you know, the the autox ombudsman to like come and determine what we're supposed to do here would fuck up our reputation so bad that that there's only one path, and we cannot kill you, even though literally everyone wants to, <laughs> uh, other than like okay. me and your friends. His, you no, know, let's give him some credit. The only reason they're not, I mean, you're right. That's the reason they're not killing him. But they did say a bunch of his friends showed up. To be like, yes, hey, it's Severian. Come on, Severian's a good guy. <laughs> yeah, and Master Palamon is one of those. Yes. Like, he doesn't want to do it, and that's the reason he's talking to him, and not Master Gurlos, who straight up wants to execute Severian immediately. Well, and also, who we got a whole section on earlier about how he's the coolest guy <laughs> who's ever lived. <laughs> or is that coming up? The Gurlos? Like, I, I'm gonna read it. I, I've I I've got it here. Okay, good. Uh, maybe I don't. Do I not have it here? Uh, I don't have the quotation. Oh, no, no, no. I do. Okay, I do. good. <laughs> um, yeah. Because it's before he, wrote, it has it, to be before he leaves, right? It is. Okay. Oh, yeah, it is. All right. So this is just him, like, going off about Master Gurlos. <laughs> it's a long quotation, but it's all great. Gurlos was one of the most complex men I have ever known because he was a complex man trying to be simple. <laughs> Not a simple, but a complex man's idea of simplicity. Just as a courtier informs himself into something brilliant and involved midway between dancing master and diplo- diplomacist, with a touch of assassin if needed, so Master Gurlos has shaped himself to be the dull creature of a pursuivant or bailiff expected to see when he has summoned the head of our guild, and that is the only thing a real torturer cannot be. Mm. The strain showed through every part of Gurlos was that it should have been none of... Oh. Uh, sorry. The strain showed, though every part of Gurlos was as it should have been, none of the parts fit. He drank heavily and suffered from nightmares, but he had the nightmares when he had been drinking, as if the wine, <laughs> instead of bolting the doors of his mind, threw them open and left him staggering about in the last hours of the night, trying to catch a glimpse of a sun that had not yet appeared, a sun that would banish the phantoms from his big cabin and permit him to dress and send the journeyman to their business. 
Sometimes he went to the top of our tower above the guns and waited there talking to himself, peering through glass said to be harder than flint for the first beams. He was the only one in our guild, Master Palamon not accepted, who was unafraid of the energies there and the unseen mouths that spoke sometimes to human beings and sometimes to other mouths in other towers and keeps. He loved music, but he thumped the arm of his chair to it and tapped his foot and did so most vigorously to the kind he liked best, whose rhythms were too subtle for any regular cadence he ate too much and too seldom read when he thought no one knew of it and visited certain of our clients including one on the third level to talk of things none of us eavesdropping in the corridor outside could understand his eyes were refulgent brighter than any woman's he mispronounced quite common words urticate salpix bordero (laughs) i cannot well tell you how bad he looked when i returned to the citadel recently how bad he looks now bars that might be the best paragraph in this. Really <laughs> it's good. so good. It's so good. This is one of those paragraphs you read it and you go like, was this the first paragraph you wrote and the book flew out? Like, you know what <laughs> yeah. I mean? Like mm-hmm. the core, of, he's like trying on the world in this by yeah. giving us this little yeah. sketch of Gerlose, the coolest guy who's ever lived. The, you know, this is extremely, you're 16 and you have a cool uncle <laughs> and mm-hmm. you're trying and, to like. And the thing that's not said here. The mm-hmm. thing is not said here is he is he is completely ripped to shit. Yes. You know what I mean? 100%. He is shirtless and ripped as hell. <laughs> like, we only learned that later, but that thing. is also true. He's shirtless and ripped to hell and like hanging out in the gun battery at the top of the the, the tower and listening to rock music and <laughs> banging his arms to the to the drum beat. And you know, it's great. He's great. He may as well be working on a T-bird. It's fantastic. <laughs> right, right. That's what's so wonderful yeah, about yeah. this is like how clear the character of Gerlos, you know, mediated via Severian and everything. And even the fact like the mediation via Severian is part of that character, right? We are to understand yes, that this yes. is Severian's perception of Gerlos. And at the same time, this means Gerlos is indeed a certain type of guy. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he's and so we've got like this, uh, you know, very avuncular uh, uncle like. Uh, a relationship and it's within the context of him hanging out in the gunnery tower listening to basically computer systems talk to one another right the mouths that are whispering to like so we're we're getting like these character moments and at the same time like the texture of the world is informing those character moments and it just it rules so hard well he's also i think i think he's actually talking to other people yeah he's Uh, on a radio right yeah, yeah, he's like he's doing. I think both and you know because they even distinguishes that he's talking to humans and not humans, right? <laughs> well, like what does that mean to other um, mouths? But Ugh. right, other mouths. And so I think that's a part of it. Is he's just like up there using the system, and this also provides some, I think, some like in-universe clarification for like, well, sometimes information comes from the autarky. And no one really knows how it gets there. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes there's a messenger and sometimes there's not. Well, what's up? Well, you got a dude up in the tower who's like using a radio all day and like, you know, listen to, to, to sweet jazz. <laughs> yeah. um, have I told you all about the my local record store in about jazz? Have, have no. I talked about no. this? This is a good place to put this in podcast form. I love my local record store, but they, they don't and I don't go in there regular enough to be like a regular. I go in there like once every few months and I think they like visually recognize me, but I'm not like a guy they know. Right. They're not putting I mean. discs to the side for you. No, no, that's not happening. Uh, but so I but I go in and I'll like spend a couple hours and like really crate dig and like find stuff that I'm interested in. Every time I go in. One of the guys was just a couple people at work there and he comes up to me and he doesn't know my name, but I think, you know, he recognizes who I am. 
And he's got a real like Georgia, you know, kind of accent. And he says, hey, man, uh, we got a real good section over there of Blue Note jazz. Uh, like, <laughs> a, like a really, and he'll talk to me for a full five minutes about oh. jazz music. Y'all, I don't listen to jazz music. <laughs> I have never purchased a record of jazz music in my life at all. But this guy has in his head that I am the jazz person. To the point where I went in there with a friend fairly recently. And before I went in, I went, look, this guy always talks to me about jazz. I don't know why he talks to me about jazz. He just thinks I'm really into it. And like it probably, and I'm like making a joke. I'm telling the story like I'm telling y'all. We go in there and we're there for 10 minutes and this dude walks up to me and starts talking to me about jazz. Incredible. <laughs> anyway, Have you considered so I'm, I'm that, putting that maybe here in the you, should, story. you should, the next time you go in, be like, oh, what's something I should check out? And, ha- and take whatever his first recommendation is and give it a shot. All right, I'll do it. I just want to know. I just want to know. What his recogn- yeah. re- recognition is for jazz. But yeah, so all of that stuff well, I is, is happening. I want to know how it hits you. Know? I want to know how it gets to your heart. I want you to go home with that album and put it on and can give it a listen and really oh. commune with the, the, the vinyl. I'm Look, I'm nothing if not experimental with my life. You know what I mean? <laughs> True. <laughs> I'll listen to anything for money. <laughs> Uh, but, uh, and even if I have to pay money, I'll do it. But uh, yeah, all this stuff with, uh, I also like the thing that, that's going on here with Master Gurlos where it starts out by saying Master Gurlos was a complicated dude, mm-hmm. but because of his job, he had to pretend not uh-huh. to. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's, that's fun. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like, he can't have interest. Like he has to show up and he has to go to the gate and he has to be the master of the torturers to receive all of these you know, uh, clients and all this kind of stuff. And he's got to pretend to be, you know, the uh, sackcloth on his head, medieval movie executioner. Yeah. Right. Like he's got to be that resident evil four enemy with the chainsaw, which again, casts the bit, the journeyman talk. Are you sure you want to be a journeyman talk into a different light in the sense that like Gerlos knows that this sucks. Actually, he's at the top of this thing. Basically, he's a master in this thing and is living a life where he's he can't really be the person he wishes he could be in some way. And nevertheless, has to go through them. Part of the thing he doesn't want to be, but is, is the type of person who convinces a 16 year old to devote their lives to torturing people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And also, I I love the kind of reward of. remembering stuff because that's a big part of like you know this is stuff that's been like uh you know um like what was it called not puzzle box movies what are they called i i would think puzzle box i don't know yeah i think is it right. called puzzle yeah. box stuff why I think do i think it, it. like lost or those called yeah, what are puzzle those boxes called? is that puzzle box yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, you know this has been like and and like the mcu that they, they have like dr- driven these things into the ground the like reward of memory mm-hmm. but, you know now that's just like 32 easter eggs you missed an ant-man mm-hmm. or whatever right but i do like the that that some of that's here because we get um you know that he goes down to the the third level and he'll talk to a guy down there and we know that's where like the mad men are kept, mm-hmm. you know, like people who are who are too mad to even be like with the other clients because they would disturb them too much. And there's a dude down there who's like worth talking to, you know, Master Girls is right. up to him. What's what are they doing down there? We well, never know. And then again, here's the other half of it is Gerlos is the one who puts Thecla on the machine, right? Mm-hmm. Gerlos yeah. is the one who does this really macabre tour of the of all of the torture devices as he's yeah. leading Thecla and presumably every other client 
to their to their end to their device. He he does this this walkthrough of the of the dungeon, being like, "Well, this one over here is called Alowin's Necklace, and mm-hmm. it does some truly d- disastrous stuff to you." Uh, and this one over here, and it's just like this is the same dude who Severian has looked up to his whole life as the cool master. You know, yeah. yeah. Uh, small note on that: the the other nice part about that scene is that they quite literally invented the torment nexus right uh one of the things that Gerlos points out is a machine that uh uses a like knife to inscribe a part like a chosen sentence onto the skin of the person undergoing the the torture uh which is the mm-hmm. device from kafka's story in the penal colony in the penal colony yes oh, yeah. yes oh, yeah. yes 100 yeah, yeah. percent. he's like but it's broken Banger. and it hasn't worked in years <laughs> Banger, banger. That's uh, the, 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 my favorite note of, uh, in the penal colony is that the leader of this penal colony is asked, well, how do the, do the prisoners know, um, you know, what they, can they defend themselves? And the guys like defend themselves, they don't, they, they're not even told what their, what their crime was. He's like, well, how do they not know, you know, how do they, did they ever find out what their crime was? And he's like, oh yeah, they, they learned it on their flesh because we put their crime into their body via this torture device, basically. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great. I love to learn my crime on my flesh. Well, there's a, there's also some like great social history there too, because there's just like straight up like a whipping post essentially. And, uh, Gorlos is like, yeah, we used to have that up in the, in the courtyard, but the witches complained about it all the time. <laughs> yeah. we move it down here. And now we don't use it anymore. <sighs> like there, there's this kind of like, uh, I don't know, like oscillating thing of like, like you're saying, like literary reference, mm-hmm. science fiction ass revolutionary machine. Post that made our neighbors mad, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. the, like all of those things happen in sequence, and you have to like kind of hold on to that all at one time, which really gives you a good kind of idea of like this is just life, like you know, it's all of history piled up in a big old garbage pit, and we just have to look at it and kind of talk about the it. The HOA called them and was like, "You can't have the whipping post out front. You maybe <laughs> can put it in the back in the backyard, but you cannot have it in your front yard." <laughs> yeah, and they're like, "All right, we'll move it." Well, we'll put it in the garage <laughs> with all of our other torture crap. But uh, but yeah, I mean, that kind of, like, as you're saying, right, he, Gerlos is the cool uncle, and how we got started on this is, like, he's the hardliner. Yep. Kill Severian. That's the only way to resolve any of these issues, and Palamon won't let it happen. He gives him Terminus Est, which is his, like, epic fantasy mm-hmm. sword. <laughs> <gasps> <laughs> which, weirdly enough, is like, uh, I mean, it's like, Rad as hell. It's an executioner's blade, so it doesn't have a point on it. It's got a rounded tip mm-hmm. because it's chopping, not poking. Therefore, <laughs> also uh, looks like a big old crucifix. Mm. Mm-hmm. Oh my god! Some sort of rude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he 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 gets to run around and do some other stuff. But basically, he's banished after that point. Uh, but the thing that we are getting to really quickly, really, 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 really mm-hmm. quickly, uh, is sure. in the middle of Palaimon being like, "All right, dude." Here's what we're going to do. We're going to give you this sword. You're going to get the fuck out of here and go to the north and become the Carnifex at this town called Thrax. You're going to become the executioner of Thrax because that way you get to use your skills and you don't have to be our problem anymore. He goes from, again, talking about how he has a perfect memory to being so distracted by his imagination of what cool life he's about to, to, what adventure he's about to go (laughs) off on, that there's a point which Polymon is like, hey, hey. Attention, please. This is your life I'm talking about. Can you not, like, wander into reverie right now? 
Anyway, it's a perfect I, I love the thing that Palamon says, which is like, hey, I was just telling you a bunch of shit that would make your life way easier. Were yes. you listening to me? Like, I was solving your quest for you. Like, I was telling you all the pieces that you had to I was giving you all the checkpoints in the, in the quest markers <laughs> for where to go. And Severian's just not, look, Severian's got a perfect memory. But not a perfect, uh, you know, perception apparatus. Exactly. Right? Like, exactly. You can only remember what he heard, uh, and sometimes he's just not paying attention. It's going to come up again. Mm-hmm. Yep. So he he uh, heads out. Yeah. And the genre of the novel changes. Yeah, it becomes a straight fantasy novel. Well, I would say <laughs> it becomes a picaresque novel, it, but uh, it comes the Canterbury Tales. Yeah. It goes from buildings Roman to yeah, uh huh, sure. Yeah. Yeah. To Roman's building. <laughs> I mean, Is that anything? Yeah, that's, that's something. something. <laughs> that's something. Uh, uh, yeah. What's it's a picaresque a, novel? Um, so <laughs> a twirling on my back foot, <laughs> Michael. <laughs> what's a picaresque novel? <laughs> Uh, so a picaresque novel is a genre of novel that emerges in kind of the late Middle Ages, early modern period, continues through to the day in various forms. Uh, but it the, the name picaresque comes from the Spanish uh, picaro, meaning like rascal or scoundrel or rogue. Um, so picaresque novels, uh, as that might lead you to believe, are novels generally about roguish characters, uh, rascally characters who are socially um, sort of untethered from like traditional like family units or guilds or things like that, um, who end up wandering in, in kind of the earliest examples of the genre. Uh, wandering around Europe and or the known world at the time, uh, having a bunch of weird adventures. Uh, the novels are plotless. Uh, they are they are episodic, right? It is like uh, uh, so something like um, Thomas Nash's The Unfortunate Traveler uh, is about a guy named Jack Wilton, who's just like your regular everyday Englishman who uh, because it's a, a sort of good opportunity for him to maybe make some money and, and get away from some other stuff he's done, uh, joins the military and goes on some campaigns and then deserts the military and travels to various places and uh, meets Erasmus and Sir Thomas More and uh you know, meets all sorts of uh, various people, like falls into like scuffles and uh, intrigues and keeps going. Um, So uh, someone who is uh, not particularly high placed in society, but who ends up subsisting by their wits uh, and often is coming into contact with kind of like seedier elements in the ways that uh, uh, picaresque as a genre carries forth some sort of like more contemporary examples, maybe, um, is like uh, Twain's Huckleberry Finn very much in a picaresque mode. If you think about uh, Huck Finn, like traveling down the Mississippi and how like every time they go to a new state, they end up in a different town and basically Huck meets like a new type of con artist or something, right? Um, I got to tell you a thing I never see people put into conversation with this, but is simply true, is it is the Hercules or Xena or Mandalorian model of episode of the week. (laughs) I've showed it or Dragon Quest. I've shown up in the new town and it's happy town and Uh etc. But like the the episode of the week adventure serial fits this mode in in many ways. Not always, certainly. I I think reaching a mass audience means the the degree of rascality has to be a little lower than what is in some picaresque novels. Uh, But but it's still, you know, roguish, let's say. 
Right, right. I think that's absolutely true because like another kind of picaresque kind of thing, this is both a novel by Thackeray, but also uh, some of our listeners may be familiar with it, the film by Kubrick, Barry Lyndon. Yes, uh, yes. Right, which is kind of like, here's a guy who's kind of a jerk and here's how he manipulates everyone around him constantly over the course of several years in order to better his station. Um, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, I think the the episode of the week, Monster of the Week, Hercules, Xena kind of thing is very much in that mold as well. And uh, after Severian leaves the Guild of the Torturers, we kind of leave for a little bit the Saint's Life or the Buildings Roman kind of thing because we meet Baldanders who we'll talk about, but also like Dr. Talus, who just like bursts onto this scene. At, and he's such a like extremely this type of character, right? He's a short little man with a cool cane who calls himself a doctor and talks a mile a minute and is always talking about how they need to like raise more capital through all of their schemes. (laughs) I am not a princess bride person. And I know Mm -hmm. that this is a pain for the, for the ears of the listener because I know that I've committed a sin here. Please be merciful. But I I don't think any of us like it. Okay. Why would you do this to yourself? (laughs) I don't. I don't care. They can do it. It's I have a mysterious like third opinion stuff. on the Princess Bride. <laughs> oh no, we've been out. I just don't like the Princess. I, I I think parts of I like uh what's his name? Carrie Ulis. Yeah. How do you say his That's name? That's right. It's Ulis. Yeah. Uh-huh. I don't. I don't know. I'm from the South. We don't know. <laughs> no one told us. Uh, I like him a lot. Yeah, I like, uh, you know, Inigo Montoya. He, he tells well, me how do you feel about Wallace Shawn in it? Because that's the only I like Wall- person I, like I can hear Dr. Yeah. T- Dr. Talos as every line I read, uh-huh. I read as Wallace Shawn's character from Princess Bride. And I, it doesn't yeah. match the description necessarily, but that's the way I just, you know, he's got lots of big ideas about how he's going to get money back so that they can go rebuild the great manor that they're from. Can, can I? Yeah. Can, well, can you, I read uh, this? Yeah. Please. please, please. So, yeah. I was about to read it. So well, yes, I don't know please. what you're going to read, but this is, yeah. So like, just imagine this. I'm, I can't do a Wallace Shawn. No one can, but imagine this in Wallace Shawn's voice. And I'm trying to try to do some of the intonation. <clears throat> no, I'll try it. Okay. Now then. <laughs> <laughs> now then, he said, we must think. We must contrive a plan. Friend Severian, perhaps I should elucidate our situation. Baldanders, he is my only patient, and I hail from the region about Lake Diaturna. Our home burned, and needing a trifle of money to set it right again, we decided to venture abroad. My friend is a man of amazing strength. I assemble a crowd, he breaks some timbers and lifts ten men at once, and I sell my cures. Little enough, you will say. But there's more. I've a play, and I se- or, I've a play, and we've assembled properties. When the situation is favorable, he and I enact certain scenes and even invite the participants of some of the audience. Now, friend, you say you are going north, and from your bed last night, I take it you are not in funds. May I propose a joint venture? <laughs> you have to understand, Brad. when I first read this book and learned that this little guy has a play he wants to put on, Michael, I was <laughs> like, oh, here we go. Now I understand where Michael will enter this text. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, uh, I've begun work. To cajole and lure in Dr. Talos a performance of Yon Play (laughs) for audio audiences. Oh, I can't wait. So, so we'll see if no. The part I was going to read is uh, is this one. It's on one hundred and three of my like uh, double volume. I think it's the same one you have, Michael. Mm -hmm. Dr. Talos leaned forward. Uh, lean toward her. This is from later. Lean toward her as he said this, and it struck me that his face was not only that of a fox, a comparison that was perhaps too easy to make because of his bristling reddish eyebrows and sharp nose suggested it at once, but that of a stuffed fox. 
I've heard those who dig for their livelihood say that there is no land anywhere in which they can trench without turning up the shards of the past. No matter where the spade turns the soil, it uncovers broken pavements and corroding metal. And scholars write that the kind of sand that artists call polychrome, because flecks of every color are mixed with its whiteness, is actually not sand at all, but the glass of the past now pounded to powder by aeons of tumbling in the clamorous sea. If there are layers of reality beneath the reality we see, even as there are layers of history beneath the ground we walk upon, then in one of those more profound realities, Dr. Talos' face was a fox's mask on a wall, and I marveled to see it turn and bend now toward the woman achieving by those motions, which made expression and thought appear to play across it with the shadows of the nose and brows, an amazing and realistic appearance of vivacity. That's what I was going to read. Yeah. Because Dr. Talos, is, he, he is... He has layers and layers of stuff. Mm-hmm. And down in the middle of Dr. Talos, there's Wallace Shawn on top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're you right. know, but yes. Rumpelstiltskin down below. Oh, yeah. Right? Like there, there's this trickster, you know, uh, uh, thing that is likened to the depths of human history. Right. And like the, know, the way immediately after this, he like uh, gets that, like he's talking to the server, right? The server at their little like bistro or whatever, where they've sat down for breakfast and he, they go to an outdoor cafe and there's a dude who is dead right <laughs> yes. there. Yep. Who was just hanging out in the outdoor cafe, and the first thing Doctor Talos does is go and check his yes. pocket to see if he has any money. <laughs> like there is oh. no better characterization of Doctor Talos and also where they are in Nessus yep. than there's just dead dudes at the brunch spot, <laughs> and then the guy you're with is going to check his pockets and then try to even really talk to about convince the dead guy. The, the waitress to join the play. Right. By saying, yeah. hey, he does the, the classic, um, I'm going to make you famous line. And then he also adds, and beautiful with my magics. Like, I yes. have to go put a glamour on you. So I'll be back. Let's all rejoin in a little bit. But I got to go work my glamour magic on on our waitress real quick. Right. And he like guilts her because he's like, well, sit down and talk with us. And he like invites her to like oh. eat the breakfast pastry. And then like when she says, like, by the way, if you don't leave any tips, then I don't get paid. And he's like, well, you ate my pastry. So why would I tip you? <laughs> he sucks. Yeah. So oh, much. no. And he it's says, well, you need to go pay yeah. for us. He, yeah. he says, I'm not paying for my breakfast. You ate my yeah, breakfast. Go. Why would I yeah. pay for it? <laughs> he's such just a, we a can, can we set them up a little bit here? Because what happens is. Yes. Severian leaves and starts heading north, and he has this wonderful walk through the night of the city, which if you've ever been in a city you like uh, at night, you could have this experience of like, oh man, it's just me and the world out here. And then and then it's the next morning, and you're like, ah, shit. Ah, shit. Like, I was up way too late. And also, maybe I don't know what I'm doing with my life. And I ha- I'm, I'm homesick already because I'm young, and I, I haven't really found my place in the world yet. Um, and then the thing that happens that you really don't want to happen in this situation, which is he runs into, as you noted in your in your uh, summary, a pair of riot cops, uh, and ver- who, who I think have flamethrowers. That's the way yeah. I read their blazing spears. And and very quickly it becomes clear that like you can't just walk around dressed like a torturer, dude. <laughs> like you're scaring everybody, which is something he knew because when he was a kid, he talks about how he can't go out into the world without people throwing rocks and waste at him because everyone knows that the kids from the torturers guild are going to become torturers. Everyone hates the torturers. Um, and so he eventually gets called into like the local precinct <laughs> effectively and told like, listen, get out of the main thoroughfare. I don't and get some other clothes or else we're going to have to like arrest you to keep order. In fact, the the dude from the 
the um, the who I'm describing as being from the precinct. I forget what his actual title is. The like. Uh, I think it's uh, Locage or something. Locage, something like that. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, he basically says, listen, you need to understand how Nessus works. And the way Nessus works is that there are so many people that if things start to go into disorder and chaos or fall further into it, it, it the, if you set a fire in one place, it will spread indefinitely across the entire the entirety of the city. There's no way to keep order here in any real way. Um, and and that is, we, you're causing disorder. You are going to be the fire that sets the city ablaze. So get out of the main road, please. Um, and that is why he ends up going to this little inn uh, and Again, uh, in a similar way to what Dr. Talos, uh, Talos does to uh, the waitress, um, kind of strong arm guilt slash manipulates his way into getting a bed at this inn, except that bed already has a it person in so it. so funny. It's so funny. It's so funny. Because he's just learned. Because he's just like. The thing is, he's just learned right. that he's trouble. And then he mm-hmm. realizes, oh, if I'm trouble, then it means I, that's a weapon I can use. That's a tool at my disposal. I can threaten to be trouble to get what I want. And and this is the place where it's like, oh, we're in a fantasy novel, oh, right? Yeah. Like the, the tropes that are being played here are like, I'm the rogue. I'm I'm the scary guy. Oh, it looks like all your patrons are leaving. I guess the only thing that could get me to leave would be two fish. Oh, I mean, he's he's kind of yes. like an I think you should leave character, right? <laughs> like, two fish would get me to leave. Well, I don't know. I think I'm very tired. I think I'm going to go to sleep here if I don't get my fish. <laughs> Uh, and it works it like it straight up works. Absolutely works. And then he's like an eviction notice for bald enders. Right. And, and then he, Dr. Right. The guy says, all right, well, listen, I don't have any rooms, but what I do have is a room where there's two guys who are overdue on their rent or on their, their, you know, their, their debt to me. You go up there. I don't think, I think one of them's still out. You could, you could share the bed with the giant who lives up there or who's staying up there. And so he does. He goes up there, he climbs into the bed, and he has the wildest dream we've seen yet in this book. Uh, yeah, he's flying on a, on the back of, of, of Man Bat from Batman, uh-huh, it seems. Yes. One of those. Uh, and he like sees the Earth and like from way up high, and he like sees it it drowned beneath the ocean and he ends up underneath the ocean from so high that it seems like it's still and the the, the yep. world is so like um uniform that it seems like nothing is moving great love it yep ends up underneath the ocean he meets uh i don't michael you probably have like things to say about the daughters of abaya here i feel like right. you're uh yeah i mean i do uh <laughs> I, it's, I just feel like this is a thing you would really oh, key yes in, absolutely so I'm, gonna, I'm gonna kick to you i mean purpose. the thing that okay. we need to know first of all is like who the hell is abaya um because abaya i think has been mentioned up up until this mm-hmm. point uh gets mentioned fairly early on maybe um but the most we get about abaya actually comes a little bit earlier before severian leaves the tower he like but before he sets out he does his like last little solemn walk about the Madachin Tower, right? Looking at all the places and things. And he goes up to the top. And uh, uh, I'm just going to read this because as I put in my notes, uh, well, I'll, I'll say what I what I put in my notes after this. <clears throat> so he looks out like over over Nessus from the top of the tower. And he's looking at the river. 
And he says, I saw a caique with high, sharp prow and stern and a bellying sail making south with the dark current. And against my will, I followed it for a time to the delta and the swamps and at last to the flashing sea where that great beast Abaya carried from the farther shores of the universe in anti-glacial days wallows until the moment comes for him and his kind to devour the continents. As I put in my notes, in one sentence, Gene Wolfe has absolutely demolished Lovecraft. Because, like, and this is, like, this is a, this is such a great moment for me the first time reading it, right? Because, and it explains, it gives you such a good sense of Severian's world. Uh, because what he is describing there is Cthulhu, right? Like, mm-hmm. this great water beast that came in some time immemorial from the furthest reaches of the cosmos and is waiting for its moment to, uh, you know, come about and retake everything. Uh, but whereas, like, Cthulhu is, you know, half-remembered in myth and legend and blah, 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 blah. Who knows when the stars will be right? Uh, for Severian's world, Cthulhu's just kind of out there. Right. Mm -hmm. Cthulhu's like apparently awake and just sort of hanging out to the south or something. Um, Yeah. And and that's just a fact of life. Right. Abaya's just out there. Uh, And so in uh, the dream, uh, Severian is underneath the water and he sees like a vast palace that's been ruined. And he sees these like weird uh, figures walking through it. And they turn out to be the brides of Abaya, who are these um, uh, giant fish women. Uh, uh, and one of them is the, he saw, like he had a vision of one of them when he was, uh, drowning in the river Geol way back at the beginning mm-hmm. of the book, when he has that, uh, moment in his childhood where he almost drowns. It is, uh, one of these women who he, uh, sees like popping him out of the water. Um, and so, uh, he sees them and they're kind of like walking around and let me see, I want to read what, what it is they say, how they describe themselves. Cause they, uh, he, he's like, who are you? Uh, and they say, we are the brides of Abaya, the sweethearts and playthings, the toys and valentines of Abaya. The land could not hold us. Our breasts are battering rams. Our buttocks would break the backs of bulls. Here we feed, floating and growing, until we are great enough to mate with Abaya, who will one day devour the continents. So, can you, can you imagine this becoming like a social media trend? <laughs> yeah. Like people being like, my 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 buttocks would break the backs of bulls, <laughs> and it's like there's like a like a sting, mm-hmm. like a music sting that happens, and you know they there's some sort of performance that like a dance associated with that. No, yeah, this happened. This is this is the type of thing that uh, conservative you know talk radio and internet YouTube guys get mad about is when women describe their breasts right. as battering rams and their buttocks <laughs> as, as being big enough to break the backs of bulls. This just happened like last that's year. Right. So yeah, oh that's right. <laughs> Uh, two or three years ago. Time is very weird. So <laughs> anyway. Uh, yeah. So uh, uh, there's one of the things that's happening here. Obviously, uh, uh, large, scary women are recurring with some frequency in this novel. Just something to note. Large, <laughs> scary and beautiful yeah. women. Michael. Uh-huh. Yes. Yeah. Severian's big, big women <laughs> could be the subtitle of the book of the new sun. Right. Like they're, they're just a huge number of very tall, very strong women uh-huh. uh, who constantly haunt Severian's life. They cast long shadows. They really do. <laughs> uh, and so Gene Wolfing or no, uh, Severian and kind of one of those like Robert Crumb. Oh, God. Like illustrations. Oh, oh my. With the <laughs> yeah. big Robert Crumb's book of the new sun illustrations. <laughs> <laughs> You don't, you don't need to go check out our no. crumb, uh, audience members. You don't, I, I'm, this is not advocacy, but it's a similar kind of vibe, yeah. I will say. Uh, mm-hmm. it, 
And so like this, this is just like so cool. So they, they say all this, right? Uh, and then he's like, well, who who am I? And then like they say, we'll show you, we'll show you. And then they like pick him up, right? Very like gently pick him up and like spirit him off to like this little stage where they, you see this like puppet show um, as, as uh, you're described, Cameron. There's like a big kind of badly made puppet uh, made out of like wood and sticks and stuff. And it's like swinging around a big club. Uh, and then a tiny well-made puppet that looks like a, you know, a, a little marionette of a boy comes out with a sword and they like fight. Uh, and then the big puppet is killed. Uh, and then sort of further off, like back in the distance, there are like all these other things moving like these, like the, the larger things that we are, I think, given to understand, like this is a Baya or like a Baya and or like whatever class of beings a Baya as a singular entity is meant to stand in for because they're described as um being uh, just huge, like uh, unthinkably huge. One of them has like a hundred heads or something. They're the, actually the ways that they are described is very evocative of the ways that the Titans are described in Greek mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, uh, like just this absolutely bizarre, opaque dream that makes no sense and is like, what what is going on? Like, what does this mean? Uh, and then is it actually, it is before this, I think, that we get um, that weird little, yeah, it is. It's, it's uh, before that specific part of the dream. It's, so the dream is actually broken into two parts. One is on the, on the back of the man bat flying over the ocean from very mm-hmm. far away. Um, uh, oh, no, no, actually it is before then. So how does this work? Does he, he goes to sleep and then he gets woken up? Yeah, in the yeah. middle of it, yeah. in the middle of it, Baldanders like rolls around and mutters and it wakes him up. Right. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So uh Baldanders or, who he's- or he wakes from the dream splashing into the sea, being so intense that he shoots up from his bed, depending on how you read it. Yeah. Yeah. So uh he like tries to go to sleep next to Baldanders. Uh yes, okay, so that was it. Because what he says is um with a feeling of inexpressible fatigue. In relief, I blew out the candle and lay down to spend the first night outside the Madachin Tower that I could recall. Then, like, break, right? Like, a section break. Never. One word in quotes. The tone was so deep and resonant, almost like the lowest notes of an organ, that I was not certain at first uh, what the meaning of the word had been, or even if it had been a word at all. I mumbled, what did you say? Baldanders. I know, the innkeeper told me. I'm Severian. And so, uh, like, Baldanders... wakes up or was maybe never asleep but uh as you say it's it, this is like an intentionally disconcerting and confusing moment where severian has laid down to go to sleep and then we get a page break as readers and then the first word we get with no attributive tag is just the word never yeah uh, and i thought oh maybe baldanders is like responding to like the previous thing that he says nope doesn't seem uh, like it no, you know, maybe it is. It's like the it's it's really it's productively cool and ambiguous, mm-hmm. right? Because the they go into the room and the innkeeper says, "Aren't you going to wake Goodman Baldanders and see who your lodgemate might be?" And then like Severian gets in bed and like goes to sleep and all that kind of stuff. And then later, page break. We don't really know right. how far later. Uh, he says never. So the never, if it's a response, you know, a, a long delayed response, is a response to "Are you going to wake Goodman Baldangers?" <laughs> mm-hmm. Never, never. Sometime cool. later, and then and then Severian being like, "Wait, what'd you say?" And he mm-hmm. goes, "Bald Baldanders." <laughs> and Severian's like, 
Yeah, I yeah, the innkeeper told me that you're yeah, I'm Severian. <laughs> extremely good, extremely disconcerting and awkward and again, they're in bed and and Severian is holding his sword close to his chest and there's a giant <laughs> and uh, this is the first time he's ever slept anywhere that isn't the cell or his <laughs> or his uh his mausoleum, his 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 uh pet mausoleum that he used to go to. Uh he's not he's not slept right. you know in the world like this, you know? So well, and I think that's one of the reasons why this is so disconcerting, other than it being like a weird way to start your, you know, uh, post break kind of paragraph is that because of the way the line works, it's Severian saying it was the first night outside the Madachin Tower that I could recall. And we know enough of Severian's life up to this point that we know that that there probably has never been a night when he slept outside mm-hmm. the tower, right? If he came mm-hmm. from like mm-hmm. a client at the tower, right? Uh, and so it almost feels like Baldanders is responding to the thing that Severian just said that was ob- right. is like, obviously you've never been outside the tower, right? Um, not saying that's like literally what's going on. I'm saying like it, in the process of reading, that's one of the things that can make this so disconcerting is that it almost feels like for well, a moment Baldanders has become aware of the narration. But also, it's unclear. Yeah, when when they do when they do wake and begin speaking to one another, um, uh, there is the sense that the dreams infected one another. That there was uh-huh. a sort of like Baldanders. Is it Baldanders who says like, "No wonder I had a bad night of sleep" or something like that? Right? Uh, yeah, I'm trying to find uh, the exact uh, thing I'm thinking of. <laughs> a new day, Baldanders, still alive. Time to eat and defecate and make love. All that up oh, now, or we'll never get home. That's what Doctor Tallow says to wake up Baldanders. And uh, <gasps> oh, yeah, he so says Baldanders. Baldanders says yeah. uh, uh, he wakes up and he seems kind of confused. He says to the doctor, "He's like, so he slept here, meaning Severian." Uh, and Doctor Talos and I both nodded. Then I know whence my dreams rose. I was still saturated yeah. with the sight of the huge women beneath yes. the monstered sea, and so I asked what his dreams had been. Though I was somewhat in awe of him, of caverns below where stone teeth dripped blood, of arms dismembered found on sanded paths, and things. That shook chains in the dark. He sat at the edge of the bed, cleaning sparse and surprisingly small teeth with one great finger. Uh, and then uh, Dr. Talos is like, we got to go get some breakfast. <laughs> yeah, Baldander's <laughs> dreams of the mannequin tower, yes. right? Yes, yes. Right? Caverns below where stone teeth dripped blood. I don't know about arms dismembered, but uh, things that shook chains <sighs> in the dark. That's 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 the torturer's guilt. Yeah. yeah. So they like, yeah, there's like some sort of weird transposition happening there. Which makes you wonder. I mean, obviously, we already have the daughters of Abaya connecting to Severian in the in the Nenifers at the beginning, so we know that there's already a connection there. But you do have to wonder if there has been a transposition. Was Baldander supposed to be dreaming of these these giant sea women, or was there some sort? Is there some sort of connection there? Is there some sort of trigger that brought this on? Is there some sort of is the proximity to Baldander's why? Severian suddenly had dreams of of this other world and these women, you know. Yeah. Or is it simply that it's the first time he slept outside of the Madison Tower and was just thinking about yeah. Abaya, you know? Because he's like, "Oh yeah, it's right over there. It's, if you just go down south this way, eventually, I'm out in the ocean and there's <laughs> there's Abaya." Hmm. 
Well, the and something's up with Bald Anders, right? We we really yes. don't know, but the the irregularity of him is like a dude. So he's a giant, and we're like, okay, he's a giant. But you, you need to remember that Severian is calling him a giant in a world where there's there are people running around who are like two full heads taller than any other mm-hmm. person, right? So a giant means something, and Bald Anders is maybe right. nine feet tall or something because he is in a bed. Like, and we, you know, we got to assume a standard size bed, like six feet long, six and a half feet long, something like that. He's in that with his knees pulled all the way up. You know, he's in the fetal position Mm -hmm. and that's the only way he fits in the bed. So he is like head at the headboard, ass at the bottom of the bed. And that's six feet for his torso from his butt to the top of his head. That's six feet. So he's like 10 feet Mm -hmm. tall. He's huge. Yeah. Um, and well, and, and you get, uh, this, wait, you get wait, this image or this. I got the first time I read it. I was like, "Oh, I get it. It's the little like you know, um, uh, uh, pa- uh, patent medicine doctor, uh, mm-hmm. and the big giant who's mm-hmm. going to do the like strength show." But then he speaks, and when he speaks, he does not fit that archetype very cleanly, right? I mean, the first thing right. he says upon recognizing Severian, he says, I'm awake, doctor. His face was large and coarse, but sensitive and sad as well. Have you decided to kill me at last? And and Dr. Taylor goes, what are you talking about, Baldanders? Oh, you mean the Optimate here? He's not going to do you any hurt. He shared the bed with you, and now he's going to join us at breakfast. And uh, you're like, okay, wait, wait, you moved past really quick. Have you decided to kill me at last? And then also, <laughs> yeah. the way, like you said already, he says, then I know whence my dreams rose. And that is not the way you think of the kind of strongman giant archetypes writing you know in, in in most of these sort of like the, the fantasy trope of this duo you have the big dumb strong guy who is andre going the giant. like you do the andre i mean yes yeah. yes right the he's under the giant to wallace sean right <laughs> yes exactly exactly but that's not what's happening here if you're reading closely mm-hmm. no and and have you decided to kill me at last? Seems like it is directed to do- toward Doctor Talos. Correct. But Doctor Talos is telling us that Baldanders is addressing Severian, right? Right. Uh, yes. Uh, oh, you're talking about him? No, he's not going to kill you. The the other thing here is why does Baldanders not remember the conversation the night before? Mm-hmm. Right. Oh, he slept here. Right. He talked with Severian, and they had a full paragraph conversation. What's going on with that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, they they in fact in that conversation were like, we'll talk tomorrow. So. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, and there's something going on here with Dr. Talos is a doctor and Baldanders is his only patient. He tells us that very clearly. So mm-hmm. there's something going on here with like, does Baldanders need maintenance, mm-hmm. right? Does Baldanders need some sort of like ongoing treatment? There's a mention of weird scars around the back of his head and neck. Right. Right. Well, right. and here we go again. The world as Severian sees it is one of guilds and clients. Here's the doctor and here yep. is his client. Mm-hmm. Uh, the only other thing that kind of happens here, um, in terms of like what, what we did for the end of this reading is that, uh, they meet, well, <laughs> they go to the cafe, Dr. Talos gets the, the waitress who is unnamed so far, uh, goes off with her and says, Hey, let's meet up later and we'll do the play. You know, we'll, we'll learn all the lines and then we'll do the play and we'll make some money. Cause that's what we need to do. We want to get back to our, uh, uh, you know, our house at Lake Lyernia, even though it's not Lyernia, that's Elden Ring, <laughs> whatever it is. Uh, you know, we, we want to get back there. We need to make some money. You'll help us, Severian. Let's go. And Severian goes, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to do that for sure. And then immediately ditches Bald uh-huh. yeah. And he's like, I'm going to Thrax. And he goes and does that. Um, but he uh, wants to buy, he's cold. 
and he wants to buy a cloak. Mm-hmm. Well, and he wants to hide the the yeah uh, the fulgen cloak, right? He wants to hide right. his black. Yeah, yeah. He he is he is yeah. listening, yeah. in fact, to the riot cops. Who uh, just to mention this briefly, one of the ways uh, it's it's worth noting that those cops, the one who's in charge, is like the guild of torturers. Really, I thought that had been disbanded. That's worth noting that there are people in this world, in this city, who think that the Guild of Torturers is basically at this point just a myth or a legend, right? That it's been uh, uh, surpassed. And in order to prove that he is, in fact, of the Guild of Torturers, or like the the cop is like, hey, like, why don't you prove it to me that you're a real torturer? And Severian's (laughs) like, okay, and he whips around to the other cop and does the Vulcan (laughs) neck pinch on him. (laughs) He does. It's so good. I, we should note the reason that we can read them as riot cops is because of the way their armor is described and the fact that they have these clear shields, right? They have riot shields. Um, mm-hmm. And also, I'm thinking about it now. They might not be flamethrowers. They might be tasers or something like that, you know? Um, but they mm-hmm. do, they're described as having sp- mm-hmm. inflamed spears, spears with, like, literal flames uh, kind of licking at the, at the, at the front, right? And, and I think that that's probably some sort of non-spear weapon, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, they uh, yeah they've got armor that's like covering their torso only, and they like leaves their face uncovered, and yeah. it's like a bulletproof vest kind mm-hmm. of thing, right? Yeah. Is the is the image? So they're like riot cops, uh, as you said, and it's a great moment. Uh, you know, obviously that's our interpretation. You might not come to the same interpretation, yeah. but they're, they're enough of these pieces where you're like, oh yeah, they've just, they're they're using the same equipment that people have used for thousands of years in their profession, mm-hmm. you know? right? Uh, well, and, and that there's another kind of building there at the same time. People are campaigning to the north. There is cavalry also happening in this world, you know, um, yeah, yeah. Uh, of some sort, right? There is still stuff that is, you know, Severian is quite literally carrying around a big sword. You know, that is not a, as far as I, as far as my reading nope. goes, that's a big sword. And everyone's like, yo, that guy has a sword. <laughs> so. Yeah, he's just got a straight up sword. And yeah, and so that's how he meets uh, these two people, Aja and Angelus. He's looking to buy a cloak and he sees a uh, very attractive women. It's actually quite notable that Severian only seems to meet very attractive women. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, that's his whole well, deal. Yeah, and, we'll talk about uh, it next time. There's a quote in the next section I've read ahead a little bit that's kind of about, you know, you should think about it. These are the women he's decided to write down their stories. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he's, he's, he doesn't spend a lot of time describing the woman who he puts into the cell next to Thecla. She's not important because in his mind, she's not a key character. She's not beautiful and lovely and doesn't get wrapped up into the story of Severian, the sort of the, the biography that he's writing himself here. Right. So there's yeah, a bias. The waitress doesn't get a name. Correct. She, the, the waitress is, is so not attractive enough that she is unnamed. Mm-hmm. Yep. She'll come back as a character later. That's not oh, yeah. After say. the glamour and she gets a name. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, she gets to have a name. So a hundred percent, like, uh, Severian, you know, he's got, as we talked about last time, he's just got some misogyny running around in him. Right. And, uh, that inflects or is inflected in the thing he's writing down. Um, but the thing, the reason I, I bring those two people up is that he's like, Oh, it's really busy around here in this like shops quarter. And he says it is because they're gearing up to do a campaign in the North. Like everyone's going to go back up the it's Asians. Is the is the name of the enemy? Are we are we on board with that pronunciation? Sure, Askians? maybe Askians. I like the yeah, hard. I always went Askian, but I like okay. the hard C. That's good. Um, so okay. note, there is a faction of Final Fantasy fourteen characters named this. Mm-hmm. I believe. Uh, I don't think I I I can't vouch for any connection because maybe I just don't understand the Askians enough in either case yet. But 
I guess we'll mm-hmm. find out. Uh, but so they're getting ready. Basically, the weather is warming up, and so everyone's getting ready to go do some campaigning in the mm-hmm. north. Uh, and so, like, this is kind of the equipment district where everyone's doing their like, you know, uh, talking to the the equipmenters and you know, getting outfitted and buying cool gear. And it's notably, he says, all the mercenaries getting ready. Mm-hmm. So. Uh, you know, if the autarky, we don't even know if the autarky has a standing military, it could just be mercenaries, right? Like, we really don't know how it functions, but these are people who are, um, you know, fighting, uh, uh, people and they're getting ready to go, uh, and, uh, and campaign in the north for the spring and summer, presumably, to then come back to Nessus later on. Um, and so that's all happening. And then in the middle of it, he meets, uh, these, these twins twins brother and sister who are operating this equipment shop yeah. the, the rag he shop. is so horny the rag he shop, is yeah. the horniest and most verbose <laughs> person on the planet he says of seeing agia who's wearing this sort of peacock like dress covered in like uh stage jewelry you know like just cheap gaudy outfit um he says i cannot explain the desire i felt for her then and afterward of the many women i have known she was perhaps the least beautiful less graceful than her i have loved most less voluptuous than another less regional far than thecla Uh, she was of average height with a short nose wide cheekbones and the elongated brown eyes that often accompany them i saw her lift the grating and i loved her with a love that was deadly and yet not serious and from this moment when he says the least beautiful, please understand, he still means extremely beautiful because the rest of this section and onward is just him describing how hot she is and how much he wants to sleep with her over and over again. Yes. Yeah. It, we'll get more Agia because oh, yeah. uh, she's going to be kind of episode three is all, all about her, basically. Um and uh, so, you but, know, but the, the next average height, wide cheekbones, brown eyes, again, short nose. Mm-hmm. Um, it, we're, we're talking about the the you know racial politics of this. She is mm-hmm. being positioned right. as being a regular person from here in some way. She does not have the signifiers of the nobility in the way that obviously Thecla as an exultant does, or even that Severian himself does, or other characters that that you know we've been, have been described as being beautiful and noble Mm -hmm. right um and then he goes into the rag shop he wants to buy this mantle and he says um the man behind the counter was more frightening than any torturer his face was a skeleton or nearly so a face with dark pits for eyes shrunken cheeks and a lipless mouth if it had not moved and not spoken i i would not have believed he was a living man at all but a corpse left erect behind the counter in fulfillment of the morbid wish of some past owner and this is like a chapter break. Yeah, it yeah. is. A hundred percent. It's like a Goosebumps book. It, it totally is. Yes. <laughs> if this was like a serialized story in the newspaper, I'd be like, I cannot wait to read the next the next chapter. Um, and then he asks the guy to take the mask off. And he does. <laughs> and and the ribbons that hold up the mask are still on his head somehow. Yeah. What's going on? And his face is Agia's face. I yeah I don't, but and we know that Severian is not good. At, you know, thinking about the the festival of Saint Catherine, mm-hmm. right? The the that he thinks a thing is happening, and if you pay attention, that's not the thing right. happening. Mm-hmm. You know, like so. You know, the initially it's like, well, mate, is this a robot who then puts on a face? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, the, is that 
Is that what's going on? I don't know. Why would you be wearing a mask that looks like a skeleton? Mm-hmm. And if he is a robot who likes to wear masks, why is he wearing a mask that makes him look like the woman outside? Like, what's her deal? Like, what's going on? Uh, yeah, I don't know. I really yeah. don't know. Yeah, the, the, it, Austin, the thing that you were pointing out is the most disconcerting thing. That he takes off a mask and then the straps that hold up the mask are still Yes, and he doesn't really answer that one. No. No, they just uh, present themselves as uh, as twins. Uh, and this is also like some great like picaresque stuff, right? Th- this precise movement, like the yeah. episodic movement between I met some traveling performers who like talked to me for a whole bunch. And then uh, they were like, come be friends with us. And I told them to like get bent essentially. And like didn't even tell them, right? I thought to myself, get bent and then went off and did my own thing. Uh, <laughs> and then I ran into like these twins who operate a store. And then some guy challenged me to a duel. And then the girl was like well i'll tell you how to i'll tell you how we do duels in the city but first you got to take me to dinner so let's go get into a street race like (laughs) the way that severian is just being like jerked around here suddenly uh is is so uh so picaresque and so good uh because it's just like this it's like he has multiple moments where he's like well i guess this is just my life now (laughs) one adventure to another yeah and it's all built into like severian's main character energy Uh here right which is that like what happens is that uh, uh, Agilus, this brother, uh, he tries to buy Terminus Est, and Severian's like, I just want to buy, you know, a, a, a cloak. You know, I just want to buy this mantle. Uh, and uh, then someone shows up at, while they're negotiating. Uh, someone in full armor shows up and gives Severian an Avern seed, and that is taken to be a challenge to Monomachy, kind of one-on-one. Uh, fight to the death. Monomachy is such a great mm-hmm. word, by the way. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and uh, so, so that happens, and then they start explaining what's going on, right? But there's this uh, quick uh, maneuver that's going to carry on through the next several chapters of uh, Severian goes from like kind of idly doing whatever to this exact kind of picaresque thing that you're talking about, Michael, and then into like a quest mm-hmm. narrative, right? Like now he has a very clear goal. He's got to go do the goal. It's going to end with a fight to the death, and he's going to have some characters who you know come with him along the way. Um, and uh, and meanwhile, he's going, to, is. he's going yeah. to aggrandize himself because in the middle of all this. You know, yeah. it's kind of like he's like, wait, I can't be challenged. Why can't I be? I can't be. I'm not. I'm not of the contending class. Like, I'm not. The, I can't be challenged. I'm not a, an armager or whatever, right? Where theoretically, that's the class of people who get these sorts of duels. You know, uh, challenged to them. Um, and and Agilis behind the the counter is like, I don't know, man. Like, if you don't do it, they're going to send assassins after you. Like, that's when you get when you get challenged, you have to go do the challenge. I don't know. Maybe uh, you pissed off the the hip arc. Maybe someone in the house absolute is behind it, and instantly Severian is like, oh. It's because I've given my heart and soul to Vodalus. It's because I am of the Vodalari. <laughs> maybe the Altark himself, or maybe the shadowy father in the air has learned the truth about Thekla's death, and now they want to destroy me. It's like the main character syndrome is real. It's so big. It's so funny to me. Yeah, and, and it's all because, look, like, we got to hold it, like, Severian is 16 years old. Like, all right. of reality is revolving around him at this very moment. Yes, a hundred percent. He has, and he has stepped out into the world, and he's telling his own story years later, intentionally making himself the main character of the world. Right? So, 
This is how he uh, how he backs into the throne. Right, exactly. He gets the seed. He's like, I don't know what this is, and and how does he get back to Agi? Does he go outside? Does Agilis? Does she come in? Does she come in at this Agi point? Comes like, in. Oh, I know. She comes. She comes in. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And it's like, I'll bring you to where you get the weapon you need for this special type of duel. And they take uh, off. And then they, then, yeah, then they get in that road race. Mike, my, my, I know we have to actually, because uh, someone has a hard out, I believe, coming up. Uh, I can go a little uh, longer than I'm supposed to. So it's fine. Uh, but Michael, do you want to give us the, the street race? Uh, <laughs> so, uh, they are in their little, uh, uh, their little wagon or whatever, right Their Their little, uh, carriage. Um, and, uh, they're going down the street and, uh, another carriage comes up beside them and Ajia specifically like challenge, like ma- signals a challenge to the other, uh, vehicle. And Zavarian's like, what the hell are you doing? And he looks over to the other vehicle and he recognizes the guy <laughs> in that vehicle as uh, one of the armagers who was giving him a hard time way back when he was looking for Oltan's library. I don't know if we talked about this, but when he met Rudson in the gallery, there was right. an armager there who was kind of like being pissy with him, like really, you know, like basically strutting, right? He was like, oh, little boy, blah, 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 blah. Um, and he recognizes him as that guy. And then they're just like in a street race in the, the I, what I love about this is that the, the driver that they have, he's kind of into it. He's like, yeah, like let's street race this armature. And uh, they take off. They like, you know, and it, it becomes every scene from a movie where this happens, where, where you've seen, right. They're like going through a crowded market. Uh, as you already said, Cameron, like end up going like astray up some stairs and then they bust into this cathedral, uh, which actually turns out to be made of cloth. Right. It's a cath- like it's a it's a massive full size cathedral, but it's made of like suspended curtains. Uh, yeah, it's kind of like a Cirque du Soleil kind <laughs> of <laughs> massive. Right. Uh, yes, you know. that's exactly it. Right. It's like, what if Cirque du Soleil was church? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, that is exactly what it is. Uh, and and uh, the so it's the Pellerines or Pellerins, uh, which is a whole like religious sect who is dedicated to someone called the Conciliator. Who I think again, like Abaya, this is one of the great little master strokes that Wolf does. Is like little like offhand terms will be dropped early on, and then later on that term will recur, and we'll get like a longer discussion of like what that thing is and how it operates in the world. So the conciliator enters here as this figure who uh, maybe existed historically and is some sort of like divine being or divine principle. And obviously with this idea of conciliation, um, there's like uh-huh. uh, Christian resonance there, right? Uh, messianic kind of discussions like the talking about like there's even the the discussion that uh, Asia and uh, Severian have is about like the historical truth of the conciliator, like did he exist? Uh, the, the, the Pellerines have this claw or this uh, thing that they call the claw of, conci- of the conciliator, right? The uh, relic that they guard. Um, and uh, Severian makes this like wise crack where he was like, I didn't know he had claws. And Ajia's like, it's a jewel dipshit. <laughs> like, <laughs> you ask, and it's like, mind you, they have just crashed their, the, you know, this taxi uh, through the thing either the the driver was either swept out of the taxi and like trampled along the road or he just dove mm-hmm. out yeah and they were gonna run into the thing the horse died Agia's leg is all messed up maybe like uh-huh. broken or at least hurt really badly and severian in that moment's like i didn't know the conciliator had claws <laughs> <laughs> 
he's like Christ. not quite at flying spaghetti monster, but he's like <laughs> extremely <laughs> close to early 2000s Redditor here. <laughs> yeah, and so the Pellerines like are uh, uh, very upset, obviously, that someone just crashed into their cathedral uh, and the woman in charge of them. Uh, like inspects Severian uh, and then inspects Agia and based on little, like it's not explicitly stated, but based on comments that she is making, it is clear that she is concerned about the claw of the conciliator, that it may have been stolen uh, to the point that it, it appears that the, the, the claw is gone. Like at some point, either mm-hmm. just before this or uh, concomitant with this moment, like the claw is just gone. And, right. uh, they they like shake them down. It's like, do either of you have it? Um, and then the w- the woman is like, well, it it it's 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 left before. This she says, I think this is the day foretold. Uh-huh. You know, we knew that there would be a moment when the claw would be would disappear again. Is is how I read this, uh, and maybe this is that day. And you know, it's like I I took I took uh, Severian's hands and looked into his eyes, and he's not lying. I can tell that he's not lying about having stolen this. There's no guilt in him. Uh, and we we stripped uh, uh, Agia to make sure she didn't hide it on her. And it's not there. So mm-hmm. I don't know. We knew it would disappear at some point and it's gone. And the implication there, because she holds on to Agia the same way that she, she holds on to, um, to Severian. And the implication is that there is guilt in mm-hmm. Agia. Right. 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 Uh, and so they just strip her clothing all the way off of her and they look for you know, the claw and it's not there. And so immediately we've gotten something of like, well, what's, what's up with her? What is she, she guilty about? Um, but yeah, the exact thing she, she's called the dumb Nichelle mm-hmm. is, is the, uh, the tall, she's an exultant. She's very tall. Um, and, uh, you know, she's explicitly called the tall woman a couple times in the section. And, uh, she says explicitly, the claw has not vanished in living memory, but it does. So it will, and it would neither be possible nor permissible for us to stop it. Mm -hmm. You know? So like, this is part of their faith in some way. Uh, and here's the little thing. This is partially why we did the bonus episode. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch to listen to our bonus episode on the Lord of the Rings, the Ralph Bakshi directed version from the seventies is, uh, there's a little bit of the one Mm -hmm. ring here, right? Mm -hmm. Like, the the claw has its own will and it's got a little bit of uh you know decision making power to it and it's got a religion it's got a faith it's got some lore attached to it and notably Severian doesn't know shit about any of that right and he's just run into it and in the middle of all this he's he's leaning over to Agia and is like hey what do you know about this claw who are these people and she's like get me out of here and we can talk about that <laughs> we can't talk shit about them in their own cloth temple. <laughs> And then points yeah. out, and then they just walk they, out. And she points out a tear in the wall, and they just walk <laughs> out. Great. Yep. And that's what we read. Cool. Wow. What a bunch of book. What a bunch of book. Can we get that on a t-shirt. What a bunch of book. <laughs> what a bunch of book. <laughs> uh, it, uh, it's good stuff. Um, we're in it now in a different way. I feel like, I think that's, that's the thing that's interesting. You know, Michael, you pointed out, we've kind of switched genre modes here. Um, uh, and, and we've done it in two different ways. I think Cameron, you also said like, we've now gone hard into like the fantasy genre in a way that we hadn't previously. And, and Michael, obviously the, the picaresque stuff. Um, uh, and I think that that's like, we're in the rhythm of the book now in a, in a different way, mm-hmm. which is okay. 
uh, these little vignettes are going to happen. These little smaller quests are going to to take up our time. Um, and uh, we'll see how long that continues for, or if we find a different gear in the future. But I'm looking forward to this next section because it's it's kind of all about this this duel that we're you know lining up for. Yeah, and the, like I don't want to leave. Uh, this is not me like putting my foot on the gas for this interpretation, and I wouldn't do it. But you know, when when Michael says you know we're in the picaresque and we're and I say we're in the fantasy novel, that really it's that the, the fantasy novel borrows very right. heavily from these kind of yes. novels of incidents mm-hmm. or whatever, right? Uh, you know. Uh, this is part of the, as we talked about in the bonus episode, the kind of Jacksonianism that happens with the Lord of the Rings, uh, because, uh, there's all kinds of picaresque shit that happens between the beginning of the Lord of the Rings and even the kind of first big transition that happens when they meet up with, uh, Aragorn, Mm -hmm. right? You know, you got Tom Bombadil, Mm -hmm. which is like its own little section. You've got the Barrow Mounds, which no one ever remembers, um, you know, you get these little like just anecdote anecdotal things of like they happen and they matter, but ultimately we pass through them to get to some other thing. And we're experiencing this with Shadow and Claw too. It's very classical fantasy kind of stuff going on here, uh, and it's about to get way weirder. And the stuff that we read for next episode, we we are going so beyond whatever that is into a different genre yet mm-hmm. again. Uh, uh, you know, that, that gets kind of like the social realist novels <laughs> and also kind of goes like into science fiction, you know, without saying anything too directly, uh, that I think we're going to have a lot to talk about mm-hmm. there too. And, and then again, all of it being filtered through the author of Severian, who is writing for an imagined audience. You know, who is he writing for? Who does he think he's doing this work for? We move past it quickly. We don't need to go back to it here, but he talks in this section a little bit about what his project is and, and what the point of authorship is and, and stuff like that. And that is like, you know, uh, he is playing with genre. I mean, he's not playing with genre. The Severian doesn't know the picaresque probably, <laughs> uh, but, but he is, he is moving the story into these different forms, you know, uh, as he does it. And fundamentally is, yeah. is telling, you know, if the Jacksonian move with Lord of the Rings was to trim down parts of the, the vignette style of Lord of the Rings to have this singular pull from front to back, this very strict narrative, you know, uh, uh, you know, direction from left to right. Um, Severian is also doing that. There are many stories he has left out about his life because they're not particularly interesting or because they're not, they're not suited to telling the story of how he backed his way into the throne and betrayed the, the torturer's mm-hmm. guilt. Right. So, you know, in some ways I, I love it when these things sneak in um, and, and it says a lot about him as an, as a, as a author and as a character when the diversions do find their way in, it's often very self-centered. Like there's the bit, we don't have to go over beat by beat here, but he talks about the, he's, he's trying to explain to Agia briefly that he feels like an archangel in this, in the such and such a story. Mm-hmm. And he can't just say that to us. And he can't just say it to Agia. He has to deliver us the story for a page. Um, that's not even worth repeating necessarily, but he does this all the time that he tells himself a little story that's an aside, and he repeats it for the reader because in his mind, anything that what happened in his own mind in these key moments or that shaped his perspective on what actions he was about to take or what a deep emotional feeling he felt he was having at the time, he has to give you the context for that. But there's a million other moments that he doesn't give you the context for because they don't add up to this larger narrative he's trying to tell, you know? Yeah, 100%. Um, and we will get that throughout at least this book and, and into the next of uh, 
Severian later going and kind of backfilling things. So telling us stories of things that occurred when, say, he was talking, like another conversation he had with Thecla that's not in this section of the reading before her death, right? He'll backfill that in. Oh, this happened at, at some point. Or this happened when I was in the tower, you know, as a as a journeyman. I mean, we don't really know how long he was there. Uh, you, you know, it's less than a year, um, but we don't really know other than that because like two festivals don't mm-hmm. happen. Right. So we know right. it's less than a year, right. but we don't know how, how long. And based on the rest of the book and into Claw of Conciliator specifically, there are quite a few hints that it's months, you know, that, that he's cut out of this book entirely or out of this narrative entirely in order to kind of streamline stuff for us. Um, and you know, that's, that's the thing that happens. It's on one of, if you're, if you've got the orb <laughs> versions of the book, of the thing, I, we're not going to go through it here. Maybe we will at some um, episode later on. But on pages 109 and 110 is where he walks through the narrator. Severian walks through the story of Yamar the Just. Mm-hmm. And he he says, this is how it, it begins. He says, it's been a long time. Twice I have heard the guard changed outside my study door. Since I wrote the lines you read only a moment before. I am not certain it is right to record these scenes, which perhaps are important only to me in so much detail. I might easily have condensed everything. I saw a shop and went in. I was challenged by an officer of the Septentrions. The shopkeeper sent his sister to help me pluck the poisoned flower. I've spent weary days in reading the histories of my predecessors, and they consist of little but such accounts. For example, of Yamar, and he tells the story of Yamar the Just. But basically, the narrator Severian is coming out and saying, hey, I shortcut a lot here because... Uh, that's part of writing stories. I actually think it's kind of boring to read bit by bit everything that happens. Mm-hmm. And it, b- because that begins, uh, since I wrote the lines you read a moment before, there's a paragraph break there. There's a line break in between. And so the book explicitly is saying, hey, when you see things back to back in this book, maybe with a line break or paragraph to paragraph, that doesn't mean they happened back to back. Uh, you know, and the book would not say that the book tells you how to read mm-hmm. it, right? The book is saying, Hey, here's a thing that you might see in other books. It works in this, in a particular way here in this book. Uh, you know, when Baldanders is Michael, what you were pointing out, right? When Baldanders wakes up and says never. And right before that's a paragraph break. Well, how much time passed mm-hmm. there? Right? We don't know. It is ambiguous. And this has already happened before to tell us to pay attention to it. So we will we'll note some of those things going forward because I think they really start to, to be very important. Agreed. All right. Well, uh, the sounds like we're done. The next episode will be over. Um, let me let me pull up the thing here. Uh, I've got the wrong thing here. I'm going to talk my way through it, as you're supposed to do. The next episode, episode three, will be over chapters XIX to chapters XXIX. So chapters 19 through 29. Yep. 29. 29. 29. Yep. Uh, so, so through chapter 29, um, and, uh, we'll be almost all the way through the book at that, that point there. I'm basically for the fourth episode of shadow of the torturer. I'm giving us like some recap time. I think we'll be reading, I think five chapters or something like that for the very end. Uh, and, uh, just, just, or maybe even fewer than that, maybe just the, through the end of the book. But I'm giving us enough time there at the end so that we can kind of recap and talk about everything. Um, just to give some like procedural stuff, Shadow of the Torturer, this is going to be four episodes. I think in my schedule, every book after that, so call it a conciliator, and then the stuff that is in Sword and Citadel, each of those books will be three episodes each. So um, that'll give you a sense of how fast we're reading the book. It's basically 
uh, 70 to 100 pages every two weeks. So very, very doable in a, in a broad sense if you can plan out your reading. Um, Patreon.com slash range touch is the place where you can go and support the show. Um, specifically, if you want to hear our bonus episodes, our first one is on uh, Ralph uh, Bakshi. Uh, we're not on him as a person, but on Lord of the Rings, it's already out. The next one that will be coming out, it comes out on seven fourteen, and I believe it is on Conan the Barbarian. Let me check and make that's sure that's right. true. It is that on is Conan right. the Barbarian. Yes. And I do believe if we can make the scheduling work out that Danny is going to join yes. us for Conan the Barbarian Ooh. because he is a huge Conan fan. Uh, he and I have watched that movie many times. Yeah, that, that's exactly <laughs> why. And yeah, he's got that barbarian mm-hmm. energy. Uh, and also, I, I believe, Austin, you have made a specific uh, ask in order to put what? Uh, crawl the Conqueror? I would love to no, see Crawl. Yeah, just crawl? I have not seen Crawl just ever. Crawl. I think it's just called Crawl. Isn't that right? It the is I think the book is maybe film. Yeah, 1983. Yeah. I think we're going to put that right after Conan <laughs> so we can watch Conan and then it's immediately. <laughs> <off>. <laughs> uh, but I think the book is, it might be named. It must be right. Uh, Cause no. that's in my head it's called the shadow of the crawl. <laughs> oh, oh, the shadow of the crawl. Right. Of course. This is the shadow of crawl. <laughs> okay. Now I understand. Uh, it's an Alan Dean Foster book. Great. But uh, we, so we'll be doing that. You can go to patreon.com slash range touch to hear that. And also bonus episodes for all of our other shows, including Homestuck Made This World. You get a big backlog of cool stuff you want to listen to. And I promise if you like this show that you would like listening to the bonus episodes of our other shows, like Homestuck Made This World or Just King Things or um, any of the other podcasts we have done. Uh, the, I gotta, I gotta do our credits. Cameron, Uh, are we thinking of the Marvel character Kang the Conqueror? Is that why we are both going Kroll the Conqueror in our heads? Yeah, I think that's probably right. It's almost certainly, Mm -hmm. it's almost certainly what we're doing here. Um, I want to give out some, some quick credits here. Uh, so Jordan Mallory does, uh, uh, the editing for the show is, is our, uh, what, what is Jordan's official title? Uh, is it still consulting producer? consulting producer? Yeah, I believe consulting producer Jordan Mallory does our stuff. Uh, the theme song, the show theme song, is composed and performed by Cinderwell. Uh, the, big get for us, mm-hmm. by the yeah. way. Yeah, and it rips. Think, it's personally. so good. I was, <laughs> yeah. Uh, it's great. Uh, I, I think it is excellent. And, uh, you know, I was like, oh, okay, in my imaginary, who is someone who would never agree <laughs> to do this? You know what I mean? Like, who is someone I would love to work with, but who would ne- who would look at this podcast and be like, why would I do that? And then so I was like, all right, Cinderwell, let's do it. Sent the email, got everything set up. And uh, Amelia Baker, who is, who is Cinderwell, was so cool about it and so into it. It was like no imagination I had. You know what I mean? I was like, oh, like, oh, I am but a worm. Oh, I'm a fantasy and science fiction worm. No one will pay attention to me. <laughs> and like, uh, uh, like an adult human being was like, no, this is cool. And this show sounds really cool. And I want to do it. So uh, I, I actually gave a little bit of behind the scenes. I sent along because uh, she was like, hey, can you give me some like stuff from the book maybe <laughs> to like learn about or whatever? So I sent the uh, the Master Ultan library chapter. And I was like, check this out. <laughs> see, see what you're into. And that's where the theme song came from. So I think that's very cool. I can hear she it. She was excellent to work with. You can go to, yeah. And you can go to cinderwellmusic.com to, uh, to see um, more stuff. And then the podcast art for the show was created by Sam Beck. Uh, and the links to all of those people's I- information and their stuff is down in the description below. Um, 
we're recording this before we have any reviews on uh, uh, Apple Podcasts, so I can't read one. But if you do a review of the show, a five-star review of the show, and you write a, a review that is funny or interesting in some way, telling a funny story, those are some of the, the best ones we got, uh, I'll read it on the show. I'll read one or two of those. So we're recording this before that's happened, so I can't do it. But uh, please go leave a five-star review. We don't pay for advertising. You know, we don't say, hey, come over here, listen to our show. We don't do it. We just, we're tweeting about it. We're co-hosting about it. We're putting on social media platforms, of course, with our reach, but we don't, you know, it's not like we're throwing hundreds or thousands of dollars into telling other people about the show. That's your job, listener. If you want people to listen to the show, you got to tell them. So tell a family member or a friend or someone like that, uh, uh, some, uh, those two categories and others <laughs> uh, to uh, check out the show because uh, it helps us out in a huge way. Um, and of course, go to patreon.com slash range touch to support the show or go to range to listen to uh, hundreds of hours of free podcasts that are kind of in the same universe of what we're doing here. Are there things that either of you would like to say here as plugs at the end? No. Yeah, I guess I'll let me plug friends of the table um, because we have something sort of adjacent to to book of the new sun uh, on the horizon which is uh in the near future uh later this summer probably we're going to kick off for friends of the table patrons uh a campaign of a game called realis which i have been working on for the last two years uh and uh it's it's a campaign and a play test uh the game is not quite in fully public uh a space yet i'd love to get it into play test space by the end of the realis campaign uh, Realis is very much a game inspired by things like Berserk and Book of the New Sun. Um, uh, me letting myself go wild with kind of dark fantasy and uh, science fantasy specifically. Um, and me thinking about stories and characters moving from the archetypical to the particular and often tragic. Uh, so that will kick off later this summer uh, at some point. I think this is me announcing that. We've not said that explicitly <laughs> on Friends at the Table yet. That we've teased it here and there. So uh, look forward to that. Friends of the Table is a game, or is a show where we play tabletop <laughs> games. It's an actual play podcast. I guess I didn't say that, but you know, that's what it is. We play tabletop games, we record them into a microphone, and, uh, and you know, it's fun. That's my plug. Cool. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll, All right. we'll be back in two weeks with uh, episode three, and you already know the page numbers for it because I said it. 19 through, uh, or chapter t titles, 19 through 29. And uh, we'll talk about what happens there. We'll learn about botanical mm -hmm. gardens and or flowers. Both. Do we have, do we have a sign? Oh, let's okay, hear the let's, poem. The, the listing. It's like, let's, we've set out, uh, you've, you've put down the, the sand mosaics, right? And now I'm being carried mm -hmm. and I am set down and my feet in an instant ruin the sand mosaics that you spent the week putting together. <laughs> uh, the capons are on the spit, so on and so forth. And now we begin the, po the, the ritualistic reading of the poem. Amid these stacks so straight and tall with tomes lined in to end, how are you meant to find your way? It's shelved by genre, friend. <laughs>